0: You are now listening to the Claim It podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me. We get into the journey of their lives, how they got to where they are today, the ups and downs, the different jobs, the doubts, the fears, all of it. Because I believe that our feelings of being successful enough, worthy, fulfilled, lovable are not out there somewhere. Once I do this, have this acknowledgement, have the dream car, dream job relationship, then I'll feel it forever and ever. You'll feel it a little bit, but likely if you keep putting your feelings of being enough, worthy, successful outside of you, you'll keep chasing it. So that's why I believe we have to claim it for ourselves every single day, sometimes every moment of the day. On today's episode, very interesting conversation in many ways with Derek Beres. He is a multifaceted author, a media expert, and fitness instructor, yoga instructor. And he's also the co-host of Conspirituality Podcast, which is something I discovered. Well, it's fairly new. So I guess I discovered it recently after they started it. And um, I find it very interesting and I'm going to just say like how what they call it on their Instagram page, because I don't know exactly how to describe it. They dig into the convergence of right-wing conspiracy theories and Fox progressive wellness utopianism. (laughs) So um, yeah, they talk about, you know, two of them have been involved in what they now see as cults, you know, the yoga communities, how they look at a lot of different things and they actually do it with a lot of research in compassion and compassion. They do do it with camp- compassion too cuz i myself even been like no now you're looking at this person i liked that person and then they're just they're just shining a light on different things in the wellness and spirituality community. So anyway, i found them very interesting. Wanted to talk to Derek about how that got started and also just his life cuz He's an author. He has a new book out about the case for psychedelics in ritual and therapy. He's been a yoga instructor for so long. He's had a pretty cool life. And um, make sure I was about to say, let's get into the episode, but please, please, please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. And if you haven't yet, leave a review. Those really help me and the podcast get more discoverable. And I'll send you a gift if you do. Screenshot your review, send it to podcast at yourjoyologist.com. And I'll send you a gift from my product line. And also, love to see you guys sharing about the episodes on social media. Make sure to tag me. I'm at your joyologist. All right, here we go. So, I like to talk, start with like, what was life like for you growing up and like, especially high school? Ages, because you know, I feel like that can be such a challenging time. And then it's also sort of this time of like, what am I gonna do with the rest of my life? <laughs> can come <laughs> up. Like, do you remember like what you thought you wanted to be when you grew up or pressures from family?
1: Yes, I I have plenty from high school. I don't think I really thought about what I wanted to I, I just started a new job this week and now I'm really thinking about what I want to be when I grow up. So <laughs> that that has never really been um I, I've not been the best planner in that regard.
0: <laughs> well, I think it's funny. Like, I like asking about that because I think as a society, that's like how we're shaped, right? Like, okay, you got to get your shit together and figure it out and go to college and you get a job and you do that for the rest of your life. And now it's not, yeah. it's like so many of no. us have like had many careers and it's like, it seems so silly thinking back. Yeah, and my, But that's and why parents... I like bringing it up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, but my, my I was just with my father in Vegas this weekend, and we actually talked about that. They put no pressure on me whatsoever, so I didn't have that. I, I was very lucky. I was the first person in my family to ever go to college, so they were just like, "You made it, okay, go do your thing."
0: <laughs> and they weren't in any precious t- pressure to go to college or to not. They oh, totally no, were no. just letting it. There do was your no own- pressure. Yeah, that does seem unique these days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about these days. I feel like yeah, in the generation I grew up, for sure, it seemed like. There's a lot of parental pressure from people I know.
1: Oh, yeah. Other people had it around me. I just didn't.
0: <laughs> and so you did, though. You knew you wanted to go to college.
1: Yeah, my friends were going. And I was I, I was I always geared towards academics. I wasn't going to the military and I wasn't going to vocational school. So no, college was always. Yeah, that was the did choice. Did you
0: have any like feelings of what you wanted to do or just like I'm going to college? I'll figure it out.
1: Yes. I went to college to major in accounting because I was really good at it. I was in my high school business club and I was the accountant and we did really wow. well and I liked it. But within a month at college, I realized that was not going to happen.
0: <laughs> That's pretty quick to figure that out.
1: <laughs> well, I I was introduced to marijuana and that changed oh. everything. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I was what to say. Like usually, you don't even start your like major in your first uh, month. So I'm like to figure that out so quickly. So what did marijuana do for you?
1: <laughs> it, it just it opened my mind completely, and I was also handed copies of the Bhagavad Gita and the Dhammapada at the same time, like literally the same week. I was given those substances, and that actually set off not only my college life. It's it's continue to influence my life. I just published a book two weeks ago on psychedelics, and they were introduced shortly thereafter in college. And uh, I grew up with no religion whatsoever. So studying religion was fascinating to me because I love storytelling. I, I've been reading my entire books my entire life so the i just had never come across spiritual books and so all of a sudden being given these books and then giving these implements to expand my mind it it has it continues and it will continue for the rest of my life that influential period of that first month of college
0: and who where did those books come from and that like that made you actually like cuz you i guess the fact that you already loved reading and taking information so even though it was like you know cuz a lot of people get handed those books and they're you going to like sit somewhere and, you know, collect dust and never open Or open them and then they never, oh, this is interesting. And then never read them. Like where, who did the books come to them? And like, yeah, what made you dive into them?
1: Well, my, I went to college in the town that, at Rutgers University. It was a town over from where I grew up. So it wasn't far away geographically, but in terms of life, it was completely different because I grew up in a very small suburban white community that was extremely racist. And then from there, I transplanted a few miles over to one of the most racially diverse college campuses in the country. My roommate was 6'7", 400 pounds. I'm 6'3". And we're sharing this small room. And then it just so happens that he made friends the first week of college with two commuters from North Jersey. And they both lived in our room for a year. So we had four 18-year-old boys sharing one room. They slept on the floor next to each other. And one of them is who handed me those books because they basically just moved in. I mean, that was the time and the era, and it worked. And there was nothing bad about it. It was actually a great time in my life. But he gave them to me. And being a reader, my my roommate, my actual roommate, was really into science fiction. He was always reading Frank Herbert books. And I was just open to experience. So I started with those books. And it wasn't just the books. He had read them and he was crashing with us. So every night we were up till one, two AM talking about the topics in them. And that sort of is what really inspired my path and studying this study of religion and spirituality started from there.
0: So is that did you end up changing your major and your college focus to like a religion or spirituality or something too?
1: Yeah, it was initially English because I, the one thing when you asked, I said, I didn't know, I've always wanted to be a writer. I tried to write a book when I was five years old. So it was just, that was always reading and writing were fundamental to my life up until that point, along with sports. And that still defines my life, fitness, and then journalism, or it's still what I do to this day. The thing, oh, sorry, I started with English because i just loved reading and writing, but what really got me were two things. One of the requirements was expository writing. And I just, at that time, I hated that form of writing. So, What does
0: that mean?
1: Expositional, right? It's, it's basically the intro to, uh, to writing at that time. And um, you, you're predominantly looking to contrast ideas. And the interesting thing was I was also studying religion in my own time, so I wanted to synthesize ideas. And, and my... My first expository writing teacher, I remember, said that I kept not doing the assignments correctly, that he liked how I was writing, but I wasn't actually writing as I was supposed to be. So he gave me a D in the first semester, which means I had to take it again, and I had to suffer through it again um, because I wasn't doing it. So the second semester, I sucked it up, and I wrote more in that style but it's just it's this way, it's, uh, it's this way of, of just contrasting ideas, and that was the writing form. But what happened was, my second year, I was an English major, and then I took a class called African American Literature, which was by far, it's the class I remember the most to this day. It was taught by a man named Ivan Van Sertema, who is now deceased, but his book is right here on my shelf still. And, and he was such a fascinating teacher, predominantly because when people would ask stupid questions, he would yell at them for asking stupid questions. It was such a different experience. And that fit my temperament because I would always be like, why are you wasting everyone's time? And then he would actually say that to students. Uh, So I got along with him very well for that reason. But what got me was that uh, here I am again on an extremely racially diverse campus. And I'm not just talking black and white. I'm talking about everyone lived on Livingston campus. And he... And that class did not count toward an English major. And I thought that was ridiculous. So when I looked at the, I was originally ready taking a religion classes. So when I looked at the religion major, it was much more open and fluid and everything that was related to religion fit into that category. So that's when I decided to actually change my degree.
0: Interesting. And yeah, that's pretty fucked up that that one doesn't count. Didn't count. Hopefully it does now. And actually, I was just about to say hopefully.
1: Yeah, I actually wrote an article about this a few months ago for Big Think, which is the primary place I write right now. But I noticed that over the summer, Rutgers specifically that program went on this very deep dive in to for uh, to to stop all of the different exclusionary practices in literature and English, and even they're even kind of going out and saying, you know what? the ways that we approach grammar don't necessarily fit all of the immigrant cultures we have in America. So we want to have a more expansive view of how grammar is taught rather than this one specific way that we understand the English language. So they've actually changed a lot by how they're approaching it.
0: But that was just this summer?
1: Well, that that particular program. So, okay, God, program. like they've been yeah, making no, changes
0: over the years, but yes, the grammar yeah. thing was something. Yeah, it wasn't. Yes,
1: <laughs> yes. No, I've like, kept up to date uh, with them. So I've just, you know, kind of check in once in a while to see where they're at. So no, they've made progress in a lot of ways uh, over the years. But this this rethinking of what the English department is just happened this summer.
0: That is an interesting Look at that, yeah, with grammar. And I'm guessing with like how they grade things as well. I wonder if that plays in with the grammar.
1: I don't know about that.
0: Yeah. Um, Okay. So then, so that's what then motivated you again to switch to more religion.
1: Yeah, it was just that was that was the thing. I was really falling in love with Buddhism and Taoism at the moment and I wanted to just pursue that more. And when when I found that out about the having had that experience with expository writing and then having had that happen. And, and Rutgers was really a hotbed for protests at that time. We were blocking highways and streets and walking to the, uh, the administrator at the time, Fran Lawrence, had made some racist comments about the bell curve. And so, you know, it was, it was like very a lot of what is happening now on a large scale was happening at Rutgers at that time, including there was also, uh, talking about the Me Too movement, there, was a, there were all of these protests that would happen at the main campus for female rights at the time as well. And we were also blocking streets at that time for that. So it was really seeded then that that protest culture was strong then. So when you're in that environment, and then you look at racist policies happening by the administrators, you question it. And the religion department, again, was so much more open minded uh, about their approach. And that really appealed to me, even though doing much with a religion degree in terms of career doesn't, unless you're going into academics, which I wasn't, I wanted to go into journalism. So it really just informed. I was more concerned about informing my life view than getting a career.
0: And having something, okay, I'm studying something. I want these credits to count for something to give me a degree. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) No, I, I took a class called math for living just to get, by you know, because math was, I was really good with math. And like I said, accounting, but once I got to geometry, things changed and <laughs> <Math> <laughs> I, for I, didn't, I didn't quite love it as much. So I just wanted to get that out of the way, but everything else I took were things that I really was interested in, not just to uh, get some credits.
0: And then throughout, like your college experience and getting close to graduating, did you start to form more ideas of what you wanted to do? Was it still that you knew you wanted to be some sort of writer or journalist?
1: Yeah. Well, it was interesting. Was in 1997 is when I graduated, and I moved to San Francisco for a while. I moved there to live there, and I thought I was going to stay. I ended up only staying for a few months, like four months. But I did move my life there at the time, and. I was kind of frustrated because I went out there to pursue a career in journalism. But all of the jobs, I was landing a lot of temp jobs at the time, and all of the jobs had to do with this thing called the internet that I was getting, and I was not interested at all, uh, even though I grew up the son of a computer programmer, so I, I was around computers my entire- oh, Right, life.
0: that's early That's early days.
1: Yeah, so I wanted to be a print journalist, <laughs> so I moved back to New Jersey, and I ended up getting jobs in newspapers as I started to follow that track, and I moved to New York, and I was a crossword puzzle editor, and I crossword kept a lot of Puzzle
0: editor.
1: And yeah, that was that was like getting paid for a year to read a dictionary. So that was pretty cool. But from that, uh, you know, and and then I quickly thereafter fell in love with the internet and then realized which way the how journalism was going and realized what I had to do. So as early as ninety-nine, I was teaching myself to build websites. So I, I realized it shortly thereafter. But if I would have stayed in San Francisco at that time, my life would have could have been taken a much different turn.
0: And so in those earlier years, you graduate, you are doing things in journals getting the jobs. Okay, crossword editor, like, sure, like, I'll take that job. Like, what was happening in, were you still then pursuing, like, learning more about Buddhism, Taoism? Like, what were you doing spiritually or just outside of work life yourself that, like, because I feel, I know you eventually became a yoga teacher.
1: So. <laughs> yeah. Well, 99 is when I started the yoga practice, and I I had studied it the texts in college when I was taking classes on Hinduism. So I was familiar with it. I just, I was doing weightlifting and cardio basketball sports and then martial arts in college. So by the time I got into past college, I got into dance for a while. And then from that, my first dance teacher became my first yoga instructor, who was also the reason I got hired at Equinox years later when he introduced me to his manager there. So there was a series of events through movement that was very inspiring to me. And they all all work together. I mean, the I still, to this day, I point out, because one problem I've had in my career is when I write articles and then people see I'm a yoga instructor, they say, oh, what, is he, what does he know? He's a yoga instructor. And I'm like, no, that's always been part of my life. And I'd like to point out that in ancient Greece, uh, Socrates and Plato, they taught philosophy in gymnasiums because they realize that if you're training your body, you're training your mind, there's no difference between those things. Everything is training, we're, we're one being. But we've kind of bifurcated, especially over the last couple of centuries and we now like, we're specialists in things. And I've never been a specialist, I have a broad view on things. So I work out to this day, six days a week minimum, I keep up my all of my training regimens, I read every day because I train my mind. And so even then I realized, I didn't want to just do one thing. I wanted to be able to move every day. And I also wanted to be able to write every day. So I was able to cobble together a career that has lasted for you know, 27 years now, being able to do that.
0: Yeah, it is. So yeah, you're feeling like people would, or, or people would be like, he's a yoga st- teacher. And so that would like somehow discredit you like, oh, who's this guy that wrote this? He's a yoga teacher, like not a journalist as if you can't be both.
1: Exactly, all like- <laughs> the time. All the time. And it didn't really matter. I was spent I spent a long time as a music journalist and it wasn't so prevalent then, but when I became a health and science journalist about 2010, that's when it changed. And especially it, it especially happens when I touch upon pain points in the culture. So I write a lot about the anti-vaccination movement and my problems with them. And I write about my problems with homeopathy, for example. And so when I write about science, scientific studies, and I point these things out, that's when I get a lot of the venom and the trolling. Uh, Another, another pain point is when I, write about cult worship and guru worship, which also does fit into my lane as a religious academic having that background. But people people just like to find things to make excuses, basically.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I would find if I read an article that was like that and then saw the yoga teacher, it would actually make me think harder or give you more credit or, you know, because if especially because we want to make up, oh, a yoga teacher. So that means he's more if you do yoga then you must be more woo woo or lean more all the way this way and so like would believe that so for me if I would be like oh this person wrote that oh and they also are this like it would make me think that you put even more thought and intention and like research and stuff into it like than the opposite so it's just interesting how I think people can jump to whatever they want to jump to though (laughs) I don't want to believe this so I'm just gonna like say discredit him (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's that's really what it is. And and I, we come across this a lot with the podcast that I co-host Conspirituality. And that that I think I think part of the reason it has become popular quickly among a certain subset of the wellness industry is because the three of us have decades of experience in it and yet we're still criticizing all these practices. And the funny thing is we've always been criticizing them. Uh it just It took a while for people, it took QAnon for people to realize, hey, something's going on here that's kind of weird. But I've had problems with the branding and wellness aspect of yoga for a long time. You're just reaching this certain pitch where people are really confused by it now. But I've been thinking about those topics for a long time. So when people find us and they listen to us, we're not just coming across this year. Right now, we've been thinking and writing about this for a long time. Uh, so I, I think when you love something, you have to criticize it because you want to make it better, and you want to hold that space for people to understand what it really is and i you know i I began my yoga practice pre Instagram or cell phone camera, so it really you know i 'm not saying there is a pure yoga. I hate that idea that it has to be this, but I will say it was never about the look of what you 're doing. That really, I, that was around at the time, but that was limited to really yoga journal cover stories. That was it. So you didn't have this whole other branding mechanism available to you. So being critical about things you love is, is pretty important.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I, I agree with you're saying about people like just now sort of open their eyes. But what I also think is the fact that we have social media and podcasts and all these platforms that information can share so fast that it's like, I might've had these doubts, but I didn't, you know, all of a sudden you see, oh, that person over there agrees. And they're this, like, you know, it's like all of a sudden these communities are built that it also then gives you yourself more like allowance to question it. Like, oh, I thought I was alone out here in my thoughts. And then you know, like, so you kind of like may have them, but not talk about them or even allow yourself to feel them as much. But then when you're like, this person said this thing I've been feeling. <gasps> okay.
1: you've, you've just now the number one response that we've had on private messages and comments. That is it. People just being like, my community here in my small town is all in QAnon and I'm going nuts. And then I came across your podcast and it made me realize I'm not crazy. That is by far the number one comment.
0: I mean, that's even just in like... uh People that you know, that you meet, that you kind of feel are disingenuous or even like, oh, everybody loves this person and what they say and whatever and their books and whatever. But if I have a feeling like, I don't know, I feel like something's off, but everybody loves them. So and so I love so and so and they're friends with them and they whatever. So you kind of question Your intuition, your gut Mm -hmm. feeling, your whatever, you you know, because everybody likes them and everybody's their friend. So I must be off. And I would do that for years. And usually my feelings have always worked out to being (laughs) correct. That the people that I questioned... (laughs) that I felt like something was off years later. But also it'll sort of be like, I'll have a a conversation with someone and they'll be like, yeah, you know what? I always felt that way too. But yeah, I thought the same thing. If so-and-so is friends with them and if so-and-so supports them and if so-and-so, then they must be good. So it's like this funny thing that a lot of times too, like people being afraid to even talk about their questioning feelings.
1: I feel very fortunate. (laughs) We talked about not having pressure in high school earlier, but I also feel fortunate growing up with an extremely skeptical father. Who was skeptical of everything, you know, sometimes to his detriment, as I have that too. But what's interesting too, we talk about on conspirituality is both Matthew and Julian have been indoctrinated into cults, Matthew specifically, and then Julian sort of around the Anna Forest thing, which he's gotten into in different episodes. I just never was. There was never a religion I believed to be true there was never any sort of spiritual path that i thought was the one and i think that's what happens when you study a lot of them at the same time is you realize well this is saying something very cool here but this is kind of weird about it so that i'm not really going to pay attention to that. I'm going to take that and then this one over here also there's a parallel but then they're they're conflicting here but my biggest thing about basically any sort of faith is that when, when you say that you are one, you are thereby saying all of the other ones cannot be correct. And that is problematic to me because that sort of gets away in the way of true growth. Uh, I was fortunate to have spent a decade of my life, not just as a music journalist, but as an international music journalist where I got to travel and interview hundreds of musicians from around the world. And the same thing with, you know, that happens with religion. It's like when you talk to, when you get all these different perspectives from people, you quickly realize um, how limited your perspective was beforehand. One example I often think of is when I was a long time vegetarian and even for a little bit about two years of that time a vegan, but I also went to Morocco numerous times to cover music festivals. And I would be practicing at Jeeva Mukti, which was a place I loved back in New York for a number of reasons, but there are hardcore vegans there. So I always just kind of, you know, even then, even though I was involved in that, I didn't take the messaging so hard. But then I would go and my go walk around Medinas in Fez or in Rabat, Casablanca, and you see how people live and that meat is just a part of their life. And I'm like, how am I back in New York going to say that this is the way the entire planet has to live? We don't really have that big picture view unless you travel, unless you read a lot of different opinions and ideas. And so that's something that I've always taken into consideration. And I think why I've never got caught up with uh, too influenced. And of course, not like anyone else, I'm influenced by things. And, and you know, we we are never the same person. Like I'm a different person right now sitting here talking to on my computer than I would be if I was out in with a lot of people. But I've also tried to stay true because I've been an atheist for a long time. And in the yoga world, that has always been problematic to some sex of people. And but I've never shied away from it because I don't think it's very valuable if I'm just agreeing with people, even because they think of something. I'll offer my perspective and I, I am combative sometimes about it, but that's only when it reaches a certain pitch. In general, I'd rather have discussions with people, but people definitely shy away from being able to communicate their ideas when they're in conflict with someone about them. But I think debating is a very strong skill that we don't have enough of.
0: Yes. So many, some things to agree with. <laughs> and I want to get back into your journey. So I'm glad you were talking about the music journalist, but, um, I don't even know. There was so many things that you were saying that I wanted to comment on. <laughs> I can go
1: on a lot of tangents. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's good. But, uh, no, I think what I, yeah, the tangents are good. The thing I was just, I wanted to agree with you in the fact is like, I think that we are similar in that way of like, uh, I even, I had Ben Lee on my podcast this week saw, after yeah. hearing him on your guys's like, that's yeah. how I then reached out. And, um, and, and we talked about how, like, I've been sort of in next to a lot of things that ended up being cult-like or whatever, or even like, I was like, oh, I think I'm like a toe dipper. Like, I've been someone that I'll be like, oh, okay, somebody's like, go do this. And I like listening or like whatever. And I, uh, you know, like I did landmark forum an advanced course, fucking loved mm-hmm. it. Honestly changed my life. I never did anything after that. Yeah. Like, But so like and then people will say landmarks are cold. And I don't see that because I haven't had any of that experience. But I was also someone that was like, oh, wow, I learned some things. Cool. I really got some like great way to like manage my life and heal some stuff and be clearer with people Uh, and like, cool. Thanks. And I did, and I've had some friends that I would like have recommended it to it, but they also like, I don't love their method of enrolling people. like that's the only way they market is like or like they advertise that like you have to yeah. bring people there, and then you're like, you have to do this course, whatever. So I somewhat can get how people can call it. But I even had my landmark leader jeff wilmore on a on a on an a, a episode a couple <laughs> like weeks ago, too. But anyway, stuff like where I've been part of things that or I've been friends or I've done things that people have later called cults. And to me, I've just been someone that like, Oh, cool. I got that. Oh, got that. And then, like, cool. Let me carry on with my life. And that I've never been someone that believed one way was the way. I was raised Catholic and in elementary school, at an all Catholic school, ended up not being Catholic, like as a third grader, as a fourth grader, because I mm-hmm. didn't agree with what, what the nuns were saying to me. And it didn't make sense to me back then. And so I've never associated myself as being Catholic again. <laughs> like, and I. And, um, it's just
1: boring. I mean, my mother was Catholic, my father was Russian Orthodox, but the. Catholicism played into my life just in terms of CCD. We didn't go to church and I did go up until sixth grade. And then I said to my parents, I said, I don't want to go anymore. And they're like, okay. And like I said, no pressure, which was very good. I mean, but I, I was around it. I just found the the, ceremony, the ceremonial aspect of Catholicism extremely boring. Uh, and even later on in my in my life when I was, with my ex wife, uh, who had a Jewish mother and a Catholic father, I would go to the ceremonies with them at the holidays, and the Jewish ceremonies were so much better. Like, I, as, as, as a non believer in any of them, I was so enjoyed them. And then we go to the Catholic ceremonies, I'd be like, oh, it was just, they're pretty it reminded me. Yeah, it was, <laughs> I was like, why couldn't they get that right? I mean, <laughs> even if you look at more of the, the Southern evangelical, right. Uh, the charismatic movements—at least there's music and in, in Christianity and dancing—but the the Catholics they need they need an overhaul of their ritual.
0: <laughs> they need some more joy. Like- <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the cantoral singing of of Judaism was—it's just incredible—and uh, I I just wish that translated across the board.
0: But so, yeah, I've sort of been the same way where I've felt like I don't believe anything is like the one way and you're saying someone's right and wrong. So same thing, whether you're vegan and you're telling everybody else they're wrong and also the way in people can express that, too, of like, it's so great that you're that and that's why and these are the reasons. But the right and wrong thing from religion and different things has never been great. Like I've I'm someone that feels like you can get. Something good, like, oh, I love that person's quote. And like you got on Conspirituality. I know it's not necessarily you. You guys are calling out a lot of people right now.
1: (laughs) There's a, yeah, yeah, we are. (laughs) And I
0: don't know much about those people, but even I'm like, huh, interesting. I've never read that person's book, but I remember when I used to share quotes all the time, like I shared their quotes all the time and I loved their quotes.
1: Yeah, Osho's is a big one. One of the my most oh, common. Oh, I didn't is, see that one. <laughs> well, we haven't shared. We haven't yeah, gone in. It. We only touched upon him, but that it just reminds me of because there were two topics that I wrote for when Big Think used to have comment sections. This was before, I mean, social media is around, but people really loved comment sections back then. And there were two articles that I wrote specifically, probably about seven years ago, that I had over a thousand people come after me just, and one was on homeopathy, as I mentioned, and one was on Osho. And all I had done for that article was revisit incredible reporting by the Oregonian that had done over six episodes, I think, six in-depth articles. So really the article was just a recapping of what the cult did and how they poisoned the water supply in Oregon at the time. And so many people came after me saying that it wasn't real or he didn't know about it. And I'm like, look, one thing I know is that cult leaders, they know what's going on. I mean, Matthew corrected me on an episode episode saying that they won't know everything. And I I totally because a lot of times they're checked out, like some cult leaders are alcoholics or right. different things. But but they like if you're if your following is poisoning the water supply on the grounds where you live and you own your commune, then you know what's going on. So I know people love some of his quotes and I see them around all the time. I don't share them anymore. I, I did before I knew about all that stuff. And I get it. I mean, wisdom is wisdom, and you can derive it from many different places. But I do think it's important to know the source of the wisdom that you're sharing because it has different effects than you might think it does sometimes.
0: Yeah. There's a lot to get into. Let's jump back into your story, and then I will get back to yeah the podcast yep. and your guys' mission with that. So... We're in New York. (laughs) Cross. So yeah, when did you become a music journalist? And was that something like, was music a big part of your, like, was that like a huge, like, yes, I really like want to be a journalist for music or did it, you happen to fall into it?
1: No, my first journalism in college, my first semester was music. I was writing about, I remember I wrote an art, my first piece was a piece about Rage Against the Machine. And then the next month they played at the school and I was on the concert committee. So I got to meet them and they were awesome. But just so that that, that period just really got me ready. I was like, oh, you're going to give me free music and concert tickets and pay me to go write about music. I was hooked. So it it had started early on and I I had pursued it. Uh, But at the time in Manhattan, I mean, remember at this time, the way you're getting jobs is by reading the back of the village voice. You're not online so much. And so the first job I got was through a newspaper ad for the Crossword Puzzle Editor. Then I spent two years as a log editor at the Discovery Channel And then I was always freelancing for music publications at that time. And then I got hired as an editor for an international music magazine. And that's what really set me off on that path. That was in 2001.
0: Very, very cool. And, uh, what was that? So yeah, international music magazine. So that, yeah, you were like traveling all the time and interviewing people or what were you uh, doing or what, what, yeah. What did that look like?
1: Traveling a little, I mean, I went to a, a bunch of conferences and and festivals nationally and internationally. I was traveling generally once to twice a month. So yeah, a good amount, a good that's, amount. I'm like that's um, tenable. <laughs> Yeah, I guess now looking back, I mean, I actually, I miss that. I, well, obviously there's no travel at all right now, but uh, I miss being overseas often. That was a, a nice perk because journalism has never been pay- a high-paying job. But the, the good thing about it, at least at that time, is that people would pay for your flights and hotels to come write about them. So that was one of the biggest perks.
0: Yeah. I was a I was a live sound engineer with bands for like a decade. So I got to tour the world, paid to go explore the world as well. And I definitely miss that. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's a great, what bands?
0: Oh, lots of different ones. <laughs> I can't, my mind goes blank. It's funny. As soon as somebody asks me, then I go blank. Uh Dolly Parton, <laughs> Natalie Cole, Jason Mraz, Mary Chapin Carpenter, Melissa Etheridge.
1: Oh, did you see so, the Dolly Parton do- uh, documentary? I
0: haven't yet.
1: Oh, it's, I'm not, I mean, I can't say I'm a huge fan. Uh My wife is, Um, but uh, it was, it was well done. It was really, it was kind of nice because I only knew her peripherally I was never really involved in her music but kind of seeing her story was I, I recommend that documentary
0: she's a definite badass that's I'm like I couldn't even think of another word to say.
1: Yeah, yeah yeah that <laughs> comes across it's definitely uh you know at the end my wife said you know the problem with documentaries while people are still alive is they're very fawning and it was a fawning documentary but at the same time Watching her development, what she had to go through as a powerful woman in the 60s, like owning her business, it was that was definitely inspirational.
0: Yeah. I, I yeah, I'm going to definitely watch everybody out there. Let's watch, discuss. I'm just <laughs> <kidding>. <laughs> uh, so, and then in that time, like when did you decide to get like certified as a yoga teacher? And was that at that time just like, oh, I'm interested in yoga? Like, because I, when I got certified to be a yoga teacher, it was sort of like, I don't know if I'll ever teach in like a studio, but it was just like, Oh, I love yoga, but it does for me. Okay. Now I have time to get a teacher training. Why not?
1: Yeah. I, I remember I had been practicing for four years when I decided to get my certification. And I remember again, talk about the difference in cultures back then that it was a serious question is four years enough before you can become a teacher today, people just don't even, they just start their practice in teacher training. No, so, I mean, totally. Full, yeah. I've yeah. seen
0: people that, yeah, it's like, oh, I, I finally tried yoga, Trisha, And then like two weeks later, I'm getting certified.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's a whole different world in that sense. But so when I did it, I was still working in music journalism, I was able to do an evening class that lasted for six months, which when I ended up teacher, teaching teacher trainings, I always made my programs four or six months because I do not believe you can teach that in a month. Uh, that's just a cash cow. So that was always something that annoyed me. So we always made our programs, my, my training partner and I made programs long. And during that time, I actually lost my music journalism job, my full-time editing job. So right in the same month when I got certified. So I had transitioned during that time because I, while I covered a lot of different music, I became very close with a number of Indian and Indian American musicians in New York and further around at the time. So I actually spent a lot of time on the road with uh, Kirsch Kale Chebi Sabah, the medieval pundits, the sort of Asian massive crew is what they were called, and I became just very involved in that scene. And I also started DJing around 2002, and I had a crew that I was DJing with. And so the transition point, what happened when I left full time work, I had a very successful weekly party with a with a tabla player and DJ called Kersh, named Kirsch Kale, who still is a wonderful producer, and. Uh, so that was able to pay my bills, that party. It was, it went very well. It was at a place called Kush in the Lower East Side. And that's when I was starting to teach yoga. So I picked up a couple classes. And so really the only reason I started teaching was because I was out of work. And while I had this party, I needed to make other work. And I wasn't really interested in going back to a full-time job. And so that, that's what started. And after teaching for about nine months, I got hired at Equinox. And at that point, that's when my teaching career just took off because within a few months I was teaching 20 classes a week and I had been with Equinox up until um, up until the pandemic. So I've been teaching there almost 16 and a half years fully. Uh, So that was, there wasn't the attention, intention there, but the idea of getting paid to teach people to move is just fascinating and inspiring to me. So I always, I've again, juggled between that and then writing and all of the other Parts of my world that I was doing.
0: Wow! Yeah, so it happened to just line up perfectly. It sounds like
1: I've been and looking I've up been with very Equinox. Lucky.
0: Seems like, like, uh, yeah, I don't. You can't see me. I'm just making the signal with, like, like yeah, like the best, like, accident well, or, or the best amazing thing.
1: The funny thing was in 2003 or in 2004, around that time, Equinox was not what it was. It was becoming what it is now, but.
0: But you didn't know that. So it was just a nice gym. What yeah, they even nice how many locations did they have at that point?
1: Oh, they still had about a dozen at that point. Oh, but
0: okay. Was, you know,
1: they were growing. But the thing was there was a real, again, talking about debate in yoga, there was, a, there was this whole idea that there's a difference between studio yoga and gym yoga. Right. I
0: was just about to and, say like, oh, a nice gym. And then I remember myself even being like gym yoga, but that's how I discovered yoga at a nice gym in Chicago. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> so I, again, I never really got down with that because I, because I practiced in both and I saw that there were great teachers in both. So when I heard people say that, I was like, that's just, again, a, that's a comment out of ignorance. That's somebody who's involved in a studio and they don't have a good experience of a gym, so they don't know that, uh, you know, so much of our confusion is just out of that sort of ignorance of not having had experiences outside of your comfort zone and recognizing that there are other ways of going about it. So I taught at Equinox and then some studios, and then I mostly uh, gave up teaching at studios. The only studio I taught at was um, Strala Yoga, and I know you had Tara on recently, Mm -hmm. uh, and I became good friends. And she was just on the podcast this week, uh, yesterday, for Conspirituality, but we've remained friends since. Uh, And I just—I always taught there because I just love her in the studio. Um, But yeah, Equinox—I—I was fully on board, and I started teaching cycling and kettlebells and all sorts of different formats there as well. Because my movement profile isn't limited to yoga; it's I just like to move.
0: It's me, Trisha, bringing you a brief interruption to remind you, or to tell you, if you didn't know, I have both a product line with mugs, journals, notepads, keychains, magnets, all sorts of goodies to empower you and your loved ones because gift giving season is coming up. So go to shop.yourjoyologist.com and check those out. And also, even better, I have a daily inspiration app. Daily inspiration on your phone. You can also gift it in the Apple App Store and you can also purchase it on the Google Play Store. It's hundreds of powerful thoughts and affirmations to get you thinking, to get you looking at your reality and how you're thinking and feeling about it. I just opened it and I got, what can you do right now to feel better in your body? Take a deep breath, a stretch, step outside, have a dance party. That was one. I'll hit show me a card again. The reminder I just got is putting off hard things doesn't make them easier. (laughs) Very true. So that make you get, hmm, what have I been putting off? Just now I got, I am a student of life. I am always living. Therefore, I am always learning. And one more I got for you, I am listening to my heart. I do know what I want. I am not letting the worries of what others will say or think stop me. So lots of different things, affirmations, powerful thoughts get you to think differently and look out, hmm, <laughs> what am I thinking and believing? You can set a daily re- reminder time. So every day at the same time, you'll get a reminder to go check the app. Because, you know, we forget to do these things that make us feel good. And you can also open it at any time and hit that show me a card button, hit the heart button to save it. There's even a journal inside the app. You can easily share. Go check it out. It's called Own Your Awesome. And it's in the Google Play and the Apple App Store. And there's a link right in the episode show notes. Back to the episode. Yeah, so when, when you've had people maybe back then when you first started or throughout the years, sort of like act like, oh, you teach in a gym, like, you know, and sort of throw that as you a judgmental, like that's not enough or that's not real yoga. Like how, yeah, how have you responded? And have you just been, it sounds to me like you seem like a very secure person who's always been like, okay, I got my ideas, you got yours. But like, did that ever affect you at all? Or just no. even when you became a yoga teacher, if anybody was like... What are you doing? Or oh, you're teaching in a gym. That's oh
1: no. I mean, my initial response is you know, I was like, I have health benefits through a gym. You don't have that at a yoga studio. Like, you know, (laughs) I'm getting paid an hourly rate that's good. And I know what it's like. Like when you have two students show up and you know you're getting six dollars for an hour and a half. Like, I know how that feels. I wasn't interested in feeling that way. (laughs) Like I did want some job security there. So that was my my response was always that. I mean, look, I, I in a year time in, when I was in LA at this time, but I went through cancer and knee surgery within 11 months, and my Equinox health insurance covered most of that. So yeah, that was never really, I, I always realized that there there's trade-offs in everything, but I never really got into that debate with people. And I'm also, again, I'm not, I've never been shy about debating with people whether in any form. Actually, I hate debating people in common sections because it's useless but talking to someone because it can be an actual debate where two people look at each other and talk. And that is the best way to suss things out because when it happens on that level, you actually can make progress. And even if you both don't leave being changed there's usually something you connect with, with someone. And that's why I just, I don't even engage anymore in comment sections with people because it's completely useless. So, um, so no, I, I mean, I wouldn't say I I have complete security in myself. I'm like many people. I, there's things that I doubt, but I, I don't shy away from having discussions on that level with people. And I never have.
0: Yeah. And what I feel is that when people have, whether it's about anything or like, oh, like no, you're, you know, gym yoga is not right because it's not supposed to be this or that. Like when anybody's in some sort of like this is right or this is wrong, what I feel a lot of plays into it is that we as humans automatically make up if someone is doing something different than us, then that means that they think they're right and I'm wrong. Or like some sort of like that we automatically jump to the conclusion that like, they're saying your version wrong. So like, how dare you do yoga that it's like, oh no. Or, or it can be like, oh, he's taking my worth away from me because I teach in a studio or like that we become immediately defensive without realizing it. So we automatically make the other option and the other person wrong. Like in, like when you stop to think about it, like it makes no sense, but we're automatically like in the self-protection mechanism mode.
1: <laughs> and we also, what we lack tremendously is curiosity Uh, I often think one of the topics that I like writing about is the difference between individualist and collectivist cultures. And I'll preface this by saying that I don't think there's a utopia. Like, every society has problems. Because whenever I write about people like, oh, you think that Asian cultures have it right, but they have this problem. And I'm like, yes, I get that. But purely from the idea of focusing on yourself or the collective – I always reference this study, and I think it's so insightful, and it really gives at least one window into what we're going through in American society right now. And it was a study done about driving. And so they asked a group of American drivers and a group of Japanese drivers the same question. And it's that you're sitting at a red light, and your side turns green, and you're about to go. And at that moment, the car across, going across from you, a car speeds through at full speed and they ask what you feel at that time. And American drivers by and large said, I'm really angry, that person is just trying to get over on me, they're so selfish. And Japanese drivers said, wow, that person is in a rush, they must have something really bad happening, I hope they're okay. And again, this is not, you know, this doesn't fit the profile of everyone, but it does give you a bigger picture overview. In Asian cultures have stopped this pandemic because they wear masks whenever they're sick. They don't need a prompting for a pandemic. A lot of cultures have it. If you have a cold, you wear a mask out in public so you don't get other people sick. <laughs> like, and that's just in their mindset and watching what we're going through. It's really sad and tragic in so many ways.
0: Yeah, when you're uh, saying that example, I was like, okay, what would I jump to? And my, uh, well, I was going with feelings. So my initial feeling mm-hmm. was fear, but I immediately jumped to, Oh, I'd also like I also when I feel like it's going to be anger that like I'm like, oh, I'm scared. Like, but really it happens so quick that I, you immediately go like, what the fuck, you asshole?
1: <laughs> yeah. And let me say that my my reaction is anger, too. I'm not yeah. I'm like I'm explaining yeah, so this. I was
0: laughing because I was I, catching <laughs> myself like in there. I was like fear. But the reality is and I think what most people are going to were anger. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And so it's it's more of like, I mean, this is the thing about deconditioning yourself is that having that knowledge of that study, it gives me, and depending on my mood in the day, I can stop, step back and say, okay, think about that. And then don't get so angry because whatever happens in my car is not going to affect that. They're already gone. It's I'm holding on to that anger and that needs, that's what needs to change. That's what I do have some control over. I don't, I can't control the fact that they sped, but I can control how I react to it. And that's where the practice comes in.
0: Yeah. And as I said that, I was sort of like remembering something that I had heard where like, you know, like fear, like anger does often cover up fear. And so like, that was my initial reaction that I went to fear, but I went to anger. And so a lot of times, yeah, if you could get curious about, oh, why am I so upset right now? Why am I so defensive right now? Why am I so mad right now? So it's like the fear that I'm wrong, the fear that somebody's saying this about me, the fear that whatever, you know, like the fear that I've been believing something that's not true. Because there's also then people get indoctrined or they believe something, and then you're afraid to change your mind because I've been saying this for so long, or I've been believing this, so I don't want to look stupid. So I can't leave this, or I can't say this, or I can't.
1: That's really important, but that is something that I, I was thinking about that this week because admitting you're wrong is is so gratifying. because Because first of all, what I've noticed is that people are generally forgiving when you can admit something. Like some people, it depends on the level of error, of course, but in general, when you, uh, when you own your mistakes, people are like, cool, I'm glad you've grown. Okay, let's move on. But when you just cover everything up and you refuse, then that's really problematic. And the one, the one thing, because I just actually, I'm, been, uh, I'm a columnist now for this website called Psychedelic Spotlight, where I write about different issues in psychedelics. And my assignment was on ketamine therapy. And in 2017, when ketamine therapy was just, when it was fast-tracked by the FDA and it was emerging that ketamine is not actually a psychedelic, but it's kind of lumped in there. So it's something that I... Yeah,
0: what is us? ketamine? Because I've heard it talk about more with like therapy and trauma healing, stuff like that, but I don't actually know what it is.
1: It's an it's a disassociative anesthetic. That's what it's actually. So it, it was discovered in, in 1956, started being used in 1970, FDA approval. It was used in Vietnam War because it was uh the, the an anesthetic that was used was actually PCP at the time, which is really disassociative. And so when they found that ketamine had this efficacy for knocking people out, but not as bad of, of side effects as, as PCP they switched to that, and so the World Health Organization made it put it on their list of essential medicines because of how successful it was during the war. Now, every drug that we have, a lot of drugs that when they're found, like, like tranquilizers and antidepressants come from textile dyes. That's where they originate. That's when they were made to dye textiles. And then people realized that they were having these strange effects on people. So pharmacology is fascinating. And, and a lot of drugs have different effects on, on use on uh, different people at different times. So it's generally used as an anesthetic in both veterinary practice and, and for humans. And what they noticed was that it had some good antidepressive effects. And so, in 2017, when there were studies done in 2000 and 2006 on it, so it was in it was potentially being used for depression, but they had to do more studies. And in 2017, it seemed like there were good. Evidence for its efficacy. And so the FDA fast tracked it. And at the time, I was very excited about that because you were starting to see this loosening of this, even though um, ketamine has always been schedule three, not schedule one, which is no therapeutic uh, efficacy whatsoever. Um, It was kind of opening the doors for psilocybin and LSD and MDMA to walk through. So I was happy about that. So I wrote positively about it. And then earlier this year, an analysis was published that's showing that. The FDA trials that got approved for ketamine, six people died during the trials, and there was all this data that was mismanaged. And so now I had to rethink my position on it because I'm like, okay, I'm happy that anything that helps helps with depression is very important right now. But I have serious reservations about SSRIs and antipsychotics and SNRIs um, and benzodiazepines, particularly. And that those are the main antidepressant medications. I was like, I don't know oh. what these
0: are, but I'm guessing these are like what yeah. people would be diagnosed generally. Yes. if they. Got- yeah.
1: So, I mean, this is actually half of my new book on psychedelic therapy. It's talking about psychiatry and the mismanagement of the practices in the pharmaceutical industry. So it's all in my head. But with ketamine specifically, I was very happy that there was something that low-dose usage that is only occasional is having the same or better effects than people who are taking benzodiazepines, for example, like um, Xanax, every single day. So that's a good thing. So I was very happy about that. And It does still show some effect on certain people, but the side effects are really troubling. And the fact that the, the company got through FDA approval when Three people committed suicide after coming off the ketamine therapy is very troubling. So that's just an example of where, when I look at the articles that are still up from 2017, where I was championing it, I was like, okay, I didn't have all the evidence. I was wrong at the time. So now I'm writing about it and I'm I'm being like, this was what I saw then. And now we have to kind of own up to what's actually happened. And I think if you extrapolate from that and you can apply that more broadly That is how progress is made. That's how science works, period. We think something works, and then we have evidence that shows that it doesn't or there's something better. So you move on. That's a very healthy practice. And that's something that we're not seeing enough of right now in so many different ways.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting to me because I feel like I've always been someone like, yeah, we're allowed to change our mind. We can go change a different direction, change career, whatever it is. But part of like our society, it feels like, yeah, like that it's, you're like, it's wrong to change your mind, to yeah. admit, like it's again, cause I am saying change your mind. Like you don't even necessarily have to admit you're wrong. Like, oh, you, you maybe are admitting you're wrong, but you're also changing your mind. Now that new available information, now that other information became available, whether that's someone told like an opinion, you heard another opinion or this, like, so it doesn't even, you don't have to be like you're. Ch- wrong. It's like, oh, I am now changing my mind based on now I'm older and I know this. Now I had this life experience. Now this person told me their direct experience. Now there's this study, whatever it is. Like, you're allowed to change your mind, people.
1: And we're also changing <laughs> it's good for all you. the time. <laughs>
0: yeah, we're you evolving know, every moment.
1: Part of part of this this story. Um, so going back to religion is I I was fascinated with what people believe and the different ways that they expressed. Their views on reality and especially the mythologies that they create to think about the different storytelling of the imagination, which is fascinating. And then in 2005, I read This Is Your Brain on Music by Dan Levinson, which is talks to the neuroscience of music. You read that?
0: I never have heard oh, of it. Oh, it's yeah, a it's no. fa-
1: fantastic book. Dan Levington one of my favorite neuroscientists. Anyway, he writes about attentional deficits now and other things. But um, what really captured me about neuroscience and consciousness is memory. I think it's absolutely fascinating. So that's where I put a lot of my research and energy. And there's a, in, my, in my new book, there's a whole chapter on memory and how we actually remember, because I think that's really important. And the way that memory works, at least in part, I won't get into how, like the evolutionary path to memory, but one thing that's important is that, first off, you never see reality as it is. You always see reality as how you've lived it up until that moment. So that's why things become so disoriented when tragedies happen. Like I was in New York on 9-11, for example. So it's just like you live every day there. You, I was in the trade center less than an hour before the plane hit. And then all of a sudden, my entire reality is changed in front of me. It's cognitively disorienting. So what happened that day? Everyone's making up stories without actually knowing what happened, right? Because you try, you, one thing that our brains hate is unavailable information. So if we don't have all the pieces to the story, we will invent them to satisfy our need for completion. But specific to memory, once you have an experience, it becomes part of your biography. And we are changing all of the time. Like we think we're this one fluid entity that has persisted over time. Whereas if you actually videoed yourself every day over the course of 20 years, and then you go back and listen to days from like 15 years ago, 20 years ago, you would be like, who is that person? But we have this image that we're just that person. And we've maybe we've made some small minor adjustments along the way. But we're constantly changing not only day to day, but also situation to situation depending on who we're talking to. So our memories are, are generally not that great. And memory is how you construct identity. So yourself is changing in every single situation. So the idea of admitting that you're wrong or you've got something off, it's healthy because we're always doing it. Like I, I do it, every single person does it. But when you refuse to do that, I think that adds more stress and anxiety. And that's really, that, just from a mental health perspective, that's not very healthy.
0: Yeah, I love that you brought this up about memory because I'm actually I'm writing my first book right now and I'm putting a lot of personal stories in in the book to examples. And I caught myself this week like I had written a story like, OK, I'm going to use this example for my life to express, you know, this and I was like rereading it and I was like, that's not the truth. <laughs> like, I wrote that in a self preservation mode of what I wanted to believe. <laughs>
1: like yeah. You know, like yeah. there
0: was, it was a version. It was, there. a lot of it was true, and I could have totally put it in there and been the truth, but I was like, that's not, you're not telling the real truth that you're <laughs> like, like, because, but what I had done for years is I allowed myself to believe that truth because I didn't want to see like the parts where I hadn't acted like in my best, you know, like, like I feel ashamed about some ways I had acted into the, in the situation, but instead I just chose to blame that situation had so much drama and everybody was back Like not and, and there, what those things did happen but i also had my own part in it and i didn't want to admit that own part my own part
1: yeah you know that happened to me on the podcast one a couple of weeks ago because again you know the one, one thing i love about working with matthew and julian is that we're different people and we actually we have different trainings so we're able to look at things from a different perspective and i had mentioned about when i was in my teacher training it was 28 people and 26 women and two guys and at the time i was in my mid to late 20s and the other guy was you know in his uh, probably sixties. So I was kind of the guy around the studio, and the the teacher trainer was in his thirties. So uh, during our session, during our six month training, he got arrested for sexually abusing one of the stu- uh, the female students in there. And I taught I mentioned to the fact that you know at that time everyone was skeeved out. Obviously, we just we paid thousands of dollars. We just wanted to get our certificate and get out of there. And I mentioned how no one said anything about all of this as it was happening. And then Matthew's like, how'd you feel about not saying anything? And I'm like, yeah, I didn't say anything either. <laughs> right. It was just like, I mean, because when you're in that situation and the person in power still retains the power, you don't call them out. And I was totally part of that. So I was enabling in that sense. And that was something I was like, oh man, I didn't, you know, you need other people to reflect back on you, your own failures. And that's how you're able to grow.
0: But yeah, even me just admitting to myself that like I had like sort of rewrote this in a self-preservation mode that anybody reading that wouldn't have even known because the people even that in that situation would have read, but I just was like, delete. And, And it wasn't like I felt ashamed. It was more like, that's not, I don't, I'm not going to tell a lie. I'm not going to tell myself a lie anymore. Yeah, Trisha, back then you did some things that you wouldn't have done now. You acted in ways that now you're like, I can't believe I did that. But that happened. And like for me, that felt more healing, owning that and sort of forgiving myself and allowing myself to remember the truth over than hiding it and being like, no, 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 only see what other people did and said about you and not your part in it. Like it felt good to me to be like, nope, nope. I'm gonna delete all these words, and I'm gonna share a different story, and not like for shame, but like, Trisha, take ownership in your life, and that doesn't mean you're fucked up, and you, you sat and whatever, and you're to blame. This, you had part in that.
1: <laughs> well, you know, this week's episode was about self care, and we we interviewed um, Hala Kore, Tara Styles, Lissa Rankin to talk about their self care methods through this moment. But then the first hour was us talking about our own, and. In a sense, as we we're going through it, and we were each talking and then interacting with one another, it was a heavy episode because we were talking about how hard this time is. And at some point, I said, "You know, I know we pitched this as an episode on self-care, but the reality is that part of that is admitting that you're struggling and admitting the hard stuff you're going through." And I brought up the fact of um, there is a number of young, mostly women, but Uh, teenagers and 20-somethings in China who are getting facial surgeries so they look better on Instagram. Like they're constructing themselves to take the best possible photo. And then it takes an average of 40 to 45 minutes for them to doctor a photo before they're allowed to allow it to go onto their feed. And I just think of the mental weight that must hold to try to spend all of that time just to project an image of yourself that doesn't actually even reflect what you're feeling. Like that's, that's a weight. I, I, I mean, I, I work in social media, I mean my main job now, I just started my first full time job this week. Uh, I've been freelancing with a company and they hired me full time so it's been 17 years. And part of it is social media and I, I really have to think about best hygienic practices of how we as a company are presenting ourselves. Because I want to be honest about what we are in every capacity. And everyone on the team is is all for that, which is wonderful. But so much of social media is projection. And that's really damaging. I mean, in, in one sense, I'm glad I'm not young at this point. You know, I still engage in it, but to to have to think about that sort of weight, it can be crippling.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Same. I'm not. That's, yeah, I'm not. I know yeah. you're it's
1: the joyologist, but
0: <laughs> well, but that's like the joyologist. The, I mean, if you read like my bio of like I'm about like being real. Like to me, yes, what I, I know, say I is the truest way of joy <laughs> is that you gotta fucking be real with yourself and the beliefs that you're believing and what you're telling yourself and what you're projecting is your reality. Like I'm not about fucking like faking happy and faking that like.
1: That's which, something I've pointed out. I pointed out recently, but I've, I've written about this for years because Joseph Campbell is a big influence and he is most well-known for follow your bliss. And so people often truncate that that part of the quote just and put that up there to follow your bliss. But if you read the entire quote, most of the quote has to do with how much struggle it is to find your bliss. And the fact that bliss has nothing to do with your happiness, it is about coming through your adversity and then overcoming that and and then as Kierkegaard said courage isn't not having fear it's seeing your fear and then moving forward in spite of that fear and that is what bliss traditionally is and if you look at the yoga literature that is also ananda that is what the term comes from the bliss is not happiness It's the ability to rein in your mind and and have a stable mind. And and that's why I've always pointed out that the, the goal in Buddhism isn't happiness, it's contentment. Because situations aren't always going to be happy, but if you can navigate both the rough times and the good times without getting swayed too far in any direction, then you have some real satisfaction with life. It's that constant chasing for what we think of as happiness, which becomes hedonic and then becomes addictive, and then that is when you get into that spiral where you think you need a facial surgery to look better on your phone.
0: Yeah, if I just do this, then everything will be great. Which yeah, I agree with everything that you just said, and I have several times, even most recently, have been like, maybe I'm gonna change not. Take change my brand from your joyologist. That feels too, but I kind of like it. I can reel people in, like, oh, what's this joy? And then I'll be like, I'm here to make you face your shit (laughs) (laughs) while also finding joy. (laughs) So so I was like, yes, I was like, maybe that you're a (laughs) joyologist, which I am. I am (laughs) gently of joy, but like, I'm also like, I'm real here, people. I'm here to be real with you and for you to get real with yourself. Okay, let's get to you've mentioned your book, but yeah, so what is the book and what inspired you to sit down and write a whole freaking book about this? Because <laughs> it sounds like you must have experimented and done a ton of research for years.
1: A ton of anecdotal research. Yeah, I spent a, a good 15-month stretch of my life where I tripped probably over a hundred times. Holy shit. So, and that was a little much. So I came out of that and now I use psychedelics much more wisely. But again, remember the, the time, the people I was with and then studying religion. And here's the thing about it, having not grown up with religion or a spiritual practice at all, and then finding this literature and then being given mushrooms and LSD and the other substances, I... Gravitated toward the mystical elements of religion because they were all about experiencing what the religious experience, Sufis and Gnostics, right? It was about actually having the experience. It wasn't saying this person had the experience once, and if I have faith that he had the experience, I'll reach salvation. It's all about actually having experience. And so I was always hesitant. I mean, my writing can be memoir but i'm a trained journalist so a lot of it is not in first person some of it is and i've gotten more comfortable writing first person over the years but i was always hesitant to write a memoir and then i read mary carr's book the art of memoir where she makes the case of why memoirs are important and i decided i wanted to tell that story about my psychedelic experiences so I initially went in just wanting to write a memoir. And mm. it's actually my 10th book. I've written a lot of books on different topics. Wow. It was the first one I was taking that approach. And then when I started writing... I realized that I just didn't want to just write about myself. So, so I made it about the history of 20th century pharmacology and the psychiatry industry, because my argument is that psychedelics do help your mental health in the right circumstances and in the right set and setting. And I, that's the argument I wanted to make. So I realized that if I wanted to talk about that, I had to talk about what those substances are replacing, which is the benzodiazepines and SSRIs and the the general pharmacological outlook on mental health, which all hinges on the idea that we are depressed because there's not enough serotonin in our brain. That has been disproven for 50 years. That theory was never on solid ground. It was disproven in the early 70s. But if you want to run a multi-billion dollar industry, you have to get people taking your product every single day. And it's not that I don't think that some of these pills are, do not. I was on Xanax for six months. I know they can be effective, but I got off of it because I knew that they, it all, they are also addictive substances. The things about psychedelics is that when you take one and you're in the right ritualistic setting or therapeutic setting, one dose can change your outlook on life. I always say that the work of psychedelics are done when you're sober. All the experience does is it shows you possibility. It makes you deal, all three ayahuasca ceremonies I've sat in were just me on the ground dealing with my turmoil and giving me perspective. That is it. Yes, there's hallucinogens. Yes, the sounds and the sights and the smells are crazy, sure. But at root, it was me just dealing with me. And then when you come out, you have a decision. Am I going to change my patterns or not? So like Iboga, which I have not tried yet, but that has been shown to be very effective for addiction. And the same thing happens. What do you get? You have people who go into the ceremony, they take the Iboga and they come out. And during the ceremony, All they see are visions. We'll take cigarettes, for example. They see visions of black lungs and they see their insides and what they're doing to their body. So when they get out of that, they're like, What am I doing to myself? And then they recover. They don't recover from the drug itself, they recover from what they were the information they receive on the drug. And that, so the book is split between psychiatry and best practices and why we fail when we don't incorporate psychotherapy into a drug model, whether you're talking psychedelics or any other substance. And then the other half, just less than half is my memoir, just talking about my experiences and what I've learned on them.
0: And so if somebody was out there and they, you know, felt like they struggled with mental health and they, you know, like wanted to try something, then like, what are the ways? Cause that's also like With the days it is like and are are you recommending a certain without giving away everything in the book, but like, yeah, like say somebody's in Ohio and they're like, you know, I really struggle with my mental health. I feel like I would want to try something. It's not like, let me just order something on Amazon. Yeah. I mean, I got
1: I got so lucky because the people that I had my first experiences with were good people who led me in the right direction. It's very easy to either have bad first experiences and then never go back. Or I was just, uh, someone reached out to me on Instagram when we were chatting yesterday and she was talking about how she was somebody, uh, this women's group tried to indoctrinate her into a cult through the use of ayahuasca. And psychedelics aren't good or bad. They're, Stanislav Grof called them nonspecific amplifiers. They just take whatever your surroundings are and they amplify them. So if you're around some shady people, my one peyote ceremony was around some shady people. Fortunately, I had enough experience to know that it was a problematic ceremony and I left early, but not everyone has that. If, it's, if you're new to these substances, you need guidance and fortunately, there are organizations like MAPS who are currently training people for uh, psilocybin and MDMA-assisted uh, psychotherapy right now, even though they're not yet legal. But they, they have the foresight to know the direction that we're going, and they're training people. And I think that's really healthy. Uh, for the people who need it right now, I, I can't give advice because... You just gotta hope that you find the right people in your community who have access and are going to help you, because that's what happened to me, and I got lucky. And not everyone does, but that—that's really all we have right now, which is a shame.
0: Yeah, it's interesting too, because uh, again, with Ben Lee, he was talking about, and I know somebody else that like was part of us the same. I guess one of the cults you could say that he was part of uh the, I don't the Neomar, I don't even know what it was and like where he told me I was like so how did you get out and like whatever and he was like saying that he got a message on the ayahuasca which is part of which is funny cuz some of these systems use ayahuasca where like you have to be doing it four five times a week over and over while they're teaching you these their teachings and stuff like that and another friend of mine recently told me that yeah, like they did it so many times and they got the message to like leave on it. And then once they even left that group, they've done plant medicine again twice. And in the message, both times they got like "you're done here." <laughs>
1: like, uh, yeah, like well,
0: which I thought was interesting. But also in those, the person that was leading those things, I was told that he would say though, if you feel any, if you get messages about this or this, then don't listen to him. So he was kind of like aware that the things could be coming up in the plant medicine to not trust him or to question it and stuff like that. But he was making sure. But if you hear this, like, no, 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 don't listen to that. Like he was like, so also making sure to plant seeds. But it was like interesting to me that people were getting the messages like that was like, he was like, I was like, you can get off the bus at any time. Like that that's like, you know, that made him be like, okay, bye.
1: Well, <laughs> it's interesting. You know, I got that Alan Watts used to say, when you get the message, hang up the phone, uh, which is perfect for that. Cause he was not a huge fan of psychedelics. So they had done mescaline. Uh, I had uh, an experience in, um, the last time in November 95 was after that end of that 15 month run. I was like, okay, n- no more, uh, pharmacology, no more LSD, even though it's from argot, but it's still manufactured. Like I I kept with mushrooms and marijuana after that, but I let go of everything else I was doing. And then in July, 1997, I decided to try, I ran in, I was living in San Francisco and I just had the opportunity to take some LSD and I did. And yeah, I got the same message. Get out of here. <laughs> get Which out of I here. It and it was 20 years before I did LSE again. And I only did it again because I was, I thought in the right set and setting. And I was. And it was when I was camping in Oregon, uh, coastal camping with one of my closest friends. And it was a complete, it was the right place. It was the right time, right place. Everything was perfect. So, you know, I mean, look, when you say you get the message, what does that really mean? It means you're telling yourself something it means that something in the environment is kind of off and you're saying hey just watch out for this your just your intuition is just your history plus your environment. That's all it is. It's not coming from everywhere. It's coming from inside of you and the person you that you are. Um, there have been studies on what intuition is. So it's, it's that gut feeling is just repetition over time. And if you're in the, if you're in the environment where something feels off, it's probably because you're like, that person's a little weird over there. I should pay attention. And then the amplification of the psychedelic is just doing that to you. So being honest about what they're doing, I think is really important because then you can actually take steps to healing or therapy if that's what you actually need.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's get back to, so what made you guys start the Conspirituality podcast and what is the real intention there?
1: So basically, I mean, lockdown happened and we, you know, all of these the the anti-vax, five G rhetoric was ramping up in relationship to QAnon. So I've had my own podcast since 2015. It's irregular, but I've been. Inter- it's where I host my interviews, and it's called the Earthrise Podcast. And I was doing that. And as I said, I've known Matthew and Julian, and I know they were both thinking critically about what was happening. So I said, "Hey guys, do you want to both be on an episode where we could just talk about some of the stuff we're seeing?" And they're like, "Yeah, cool." So I was like, "Great." So we did it, and then at the end, we were like, that was awesome. I was like, do you want to come on next week? They said oh, yes. Oh, so you had
0: them on your podcast. Yeah. And existence. they said
1: yes. And again, the next week we were like, and it was getting a really good response. Like a lot of my one-on-one interviews, I mean, I never really marketed my podcast. It was it was more, my po- my interviews came from my big think articles where I had access to high level people that I got to talk to that I was very happy about. So the podcast was always just a way to to sh- if people wanted to listen to the conversation, that's how I did. I never marketed anything, but those, those first two got a lot of response from people. And I was like, there's something here. I was like, and we were talking about the term conspirituality, uh, which comes from, it comes from a 2011 research paper by Charlotte Ward and David Voas, but a British philosopher named Jules Eben had written about it. And then I had written about it based on Jules's piece and the original research paper. And so I was like, hey, and then I looked and no one had used the title. So I was like, well, this fits the theme of what we're doing. Do you want to call it this? And they were like, yeah, let's do it. And that's the intention was just putting a critical lens predominantly through QAnon because that's such a ridiculous theory. And, and so I've
0: things. met more, been talking to Mormon people lately that are like, what's QAnon? So that's kind of, I'm glad that people don't know, but what can you quickly describe to or I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I
1: mean, it's, it's the idea that Q is this deep state operative who is working in the highest levels of government, which is untrue, but um, it's, it's this transmission that's going out and the underlying philosophy. <sighs> every time I even say it uh, is that there is this, this group of satanic worshiping reptile people who sacrifice children to drink their blood to get this secret element called adrenochrome which makes them what? immortal or at least very strong and the people that are involved drinking the blood are hillary clinton bill um Hil- oh, uh Hil- hillary clinton bill gates tom hanks uh um uh, uh, why am I forgetting her name? Because she's been thrown in there. Uh, John Legend's wife, Chrissy, who's awesome. Chrissy, Chrissy Teigen. Like these- Okay, these are
0: this reptiles. is not what I- heard.
1: These are reptile people <laughs> who are so- drinking the blood of children and holding secret satanic worshiping. That is what QAnon is. I mean, that is that is it right there. Really?
0: So, I, yeah. so a friend of mine asked me yesterday and I said that it was like, I was like, I don't really know. It seems like it's like this- conspiracy like it's people that are th- spreading conspiracy and they're putting it as if it's like there's this sex child sex trafficking ring so they're putting all the blame and attention on these certain people and it's somehow targeting like I was like, I don't know if I can know it's like, but they're targeting like wellness people and especially like moms that are anti-vax or have had, you know, or like supernatural oh. because they're already like hesitant of the medical industry and the government because of things that have happened. And so I was so but I didn't hear any of this reptilian stuff, but I I thought it I knew that they were like trying to act as if they were s- stopping sex, tra- child sex trafficking. By making a lot of distractions. Yeah, and one of
1: the main people behind QAnon is um, running has gotten caught running uh, child pornography websites. Like it's it's so absurd. QAnon was started in 2017. It's been around. What happened was the, the, the conditions of living in a democracy that is soon no longer going to be a democracy if we keep going the way we are. So there's a lot of confusion combined with a pandemic combine what they were able to what what cue what the community was able to do was they were able to tap into the anti-vaxxers and that was like steroids for them because that just projected it to the mainstream and then it became this child sex trafficking thing and i had um a friend of mine named reagan williams who was on the podcast who has she works with foster children but she also has worked with a lot of the foster children she works with have been sexually abused. And she points out in one of our episodes that these people are doing this and they're actually hurting sex trafficking because first off, children, teenagers who have been sexually abused are mistrustful of people anyway. And then all of a sudden they're seeing this movement of people being like, there's this deep state conspiracy about sex trafficking and they fall in and start believing it. So she's trying to like bring them away from their trauma and heal them. And then they're getting caught up in this crazy conspiracy theory. And you you are right in the entry point of the current infestation is the right word. But um, it has been around for a while. And no, that is the actual belief system behind it. And the other part that I didn't mention is that Donald Trump is the world savior who is going to end all of this.
0: So, yeah. So and that was also what I mentioned, that somehow it links that they've caught on to some belief that, yeah, like Donald Trump is going to end this one small thing or something. So then so everybody's going to like, yeah, like he's a light worker. He's saving the world. He's like, even though everything he's saying and doing and he's such a liar and whatever, but like, I'm just going to believe this. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and Uh, and it is the people, the level of people getting involved. I mean, that that really that's why initially our goal was conspiracy theories overall, because there are many and our early episodes deal with the anti-vaxxers, for example. But the specific like relationship to QAnon, we realized that we are actually watching what could be the foundation of the first digital religion. And so we've really thought about that and how to express the dangers of that. And we've also thought, and we, we haven't come across other people talking about this, when people need therapy, when they come out of this cult, how are they going to be healed? Like what, And so we've created some uh, educational resources on our website pointing to different cult researchers to try to help because people are going to realize what this is at some point, not everyone, of course, but people are going to need healing and we don't have a model for this yet. This is brand new. So we're trying to think long-term about what sort of educational resources we can offer people uh, through these conversations and our videos and our writings, because this is going to be, this is, this is here for a while. And it's going to, regardless of who wins the presidency in the next few weeks, because obviously we're not going to know next Tuesday, it's not going away. And in both case scenarios, there's problems. So we have to think about how we're going to deal with this. And we don't have answers, but we are trying to stay on top of everything as it happens to at least be a point of reference for people to understand, like you said in the beginning, you're not crazy.
0: Um, yeah. And so I'm glad to hear that that you're crying to like, yeah, be a space for support and to help people with when they may hopefully come out of this and stuff like that, too. How do you feel about uh, people feeling that you guys are now like cancel culture and that you're just taking mm-hmm. down yeah. everybody? Because, like I said, I haven't listened to all the podcasts, but from following me on social media, and we'll see, like, oh, wow, today they said this book and this author and this things were things where I, like I said, I didn't. I haven't like read all that person's books or done their things, but I'm like, oh, I used to like love their quotes and stuff. And so I don't want to like necessarily name names. You can go to the accounts and stuff, but um, yeah, where, and so I'm like, what is going on right now? And like, what are like, okay, well, I'll say when Byron Katie I saw got called out and I don't know, I've never done her. Somebody actually just sent me her book this week, um, but I've never read her stuff, but she was someone whose quotes I got to love. And I was confused about, that like these sorts of people getting called out.
1: Okay, sure. So uh, let's take a let's take a big picture view of criticism first of all, because this is something I read early in my career, which I thought was very pertinent, and it actually relates to something I said earlier. Being a music critic is sometimes hard because sometimes somebody will give you their music, and you might like them or be friends with them, but the music isn't very good. And so then, as a, as a professional, you have to, and I've lost friends over that, but. It is what it is. But the, the idea of criticism, and I read this, I, I think related to literary criticism, is that if you actually care about the art, you want to help it get better. right? I said that earlier. In yeah, the- which I loved. So the role of a critic is to do that. You're trying to make things better. By pointing those things out. That is the eye that I look through a lot of this with. And sometimes it's it's intellectually, sometimes it's a little more emotionally. Sometimes I use shame and snark because those are effective tools as well. It depends. But, But that's kind of my view on what criticism is. So specific to this, because you're right, people have said that. So let's take Byron Katie, for example.
0: Yeah, that one to me feel like I said, I don't know much about her, but to me, that was the one I was the most like, wait, <laughs> sure. what?
1: If you listen to that episode, that episode is Matthew reading quotes from their books. And the Byron Katie quote talks about um, about celebrating Nazism. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so seriously, like, like listen it actually to says, yeah. Oh no, 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 no. The, the, the actual quote is celebrating if your baby is killed and then related to Nazism, right? Like, like the idea behind it is if you lose your baby, oh. there's a spiritual force working for your good, but the actual, what she uses is your baby is dead. And Nazism is okay. Not okay, but you, you got to look for the good in it, All right? So, I, okay. I, I, so this is the problem, again, with social media is that people have jumped out when they saw Byron Katie mentioned, but they didn't listen to what the quote that Matthew actually wrote. Like,
0: my hand is held up. I did not listen.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, why it's in, that's why it's important. And to, to, to talk about cancel culture, I mean, that's a, a very important point because another, another criticism we get is that we're three white men. And I'm like, okay, look- And I pointed this out on the last episode. There has been a conservative religious ideology that has been around in America since its inception, but especially since the 1960s. And specifically, 20 years ago, a lot of universities realized that they need to train politicians, judges, and lawyers to fight their anti-abortion cases and anti-whatever else they want to fight In the courts, what we saw last week with the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett is that we are now going to see Roe v.ersus Wade overturned. That is happening. This is nothing that that's already in motion. It's going to happen. So we need to get ready to prepare for that because that is happening. Trump is going to contest the election next week. That is going to happen. So wishful thinking isn't going to help us now. So the question is, what do we do about it? So. My thing about people who are more liberal minded. We have really taken into consideration the criticism. We have had more female than male guests on. We have had people of color. We've had an LGBTQ community. We've had one. We're going to have more. We want to have this space for conversations. But the fact is, I asked Matthew and Julian, not because of their gender or their ethnicity, but because I know that we would have good conversations. So that's the foundation of the podcast. Now, in terms of canceling, we have asked Christiane Northup to be on. We have asked Sayre and Kelly Brogan to be on. We have asked Charles Eisenstein to be on. We have asked a number of the people we're criticizing to come onto the podcast to have conversations. So far, none of them, and we've been in touch with them. Uh, not all of them, but some of them. Like, so far, got no
0: reply. Has.
1: Yes, yes. With some of them, they have not agreed to come on yet. So we are not looking to cancel. We are holding up a critical eye and we are presenting. When Sasha Stone leads a conference online and calls for civil unrest and violence against Biden's supporters, we reached out to him and said, Do you want to talk about this? Here are your quotes. We shared the links and we did a transcription of it and sent it to him and said, Would you like to reply? Would you like to come on and talk about this and what this actually means and what your intentions were? We did not get a reply. So, like, we are actively engaging with the people we're criticizing. And we will continue to do so. And if they come on, we will have the conversations there. But it's not about canceling. It's just, it it is a battle. I will say that because if you are out in support of Donald Trump, if you're an anti-mask advocate, whatever, like all of these things, that is a problem. And I see that as an existential problem because when a vaccine is developed for this, if there is one, and that's going to help. And America is the one country in the world where half of the people are like, we're not going to do it. We already have the worst response on the face of the planet as the richest nation in the world. When you look at that data, there's a serious problem there. So we don't call people out just for the hell of it. Like, there, we will always cite our resources. Every episode has the show notes and the links to what we are criticizing, so that people can go and watch it for themselves. And that's just our best practice that we that we have with all of this.
0: Do you have a couple more minutes? Sure. Okay. I was like, <laughs> I realized we're like at time, but I wanted to ask you the questions I ask everybody. Uh, I love that that you have invited them on. And yeah, I even feel like I saw, you know, like. A po- like a video, like Christian Northrup, we're here, like, we're trying to throw you a, like- Oh, a she's po- mentioned like, us a
1: few times. You know, and that
0: you've sort of been like, hey, let's talk or whatever. Like I've seen that or whatever. So I love that you are putting those conversations and requests out there and like, yeah, like let's do this and not just be like, we're attacking.
1: Let me, I, I'm sorry, but I just want to point out that she meant she has mentioned us at least three times in her videos and she even talked about the low number of YouTube followers we have and that's why she's not replying to us. So, so she's aware that we've been reaching out. So, um, there, there's that.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, that she even commented about your followers, <laughs> whatever. But, um, what else I was gonna say? Oh, also, I think you know, like, too. What I'm guessing, you know, the people, like, the reason bringing up cancel culture and stuff like that is because, yeah, I'm looking at stuff, and even like I said, you haven't called out anybody that I oh my God, I love that person's book or I love that person's work. But people that I was like, like I mentioned Byron Katie, where I was like, oh, I mean, I used to share her quotes. I've never actually read a book and I don't know this. And I know people absolutely love her. But to me, again, the reason why I automatically want to then not like you guys (laughs) is because then you're making me question myself and like, And I've never even read her books or anything. But the fact that I've shared her quotes and so I assumed and I think, yeah, people have told me how much they love her that I was like, oh, maybe one day I'll do the work. Okay, cool. But I and I don't even have a relationship with that person, really, you know, or their work. But yet it brought up a defensive mechanism in me like, oh, fuck, this person's telling me I'm wrong. So then I'm going to not like them. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I've, I've worked, I've worked with David Wolf on projects. Like I know him like 15 years ago, we did a bunch of stuff together. And so it's like, I'd liked him. And then now, but when I see what he's doing now, I'm like, no, I'm, this isn't right. Like, and I don't, so yeah, coming to terms with your, you know, your heroes, you know, that's, that's why Budo is the one quote, you know, if you see the Buddha in the street, kill him. That's what he was saying he's like, you know, the self is not permanent so that if you respect someone, but then you, you know, all of a sudden you can't give yourself over and put so much energy into other people was the main point of that.
0: Yeah. So anyway, I was just replying is like, yeah, you're not even like taking a hero of mine, but you're taking people that like, whatever. And it still made me like defensive <sighs> and then make me want to automatically not like you guys anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I <laughs> I'm understand. This like, I Cause I'm
0: like, I'm guessing that's what happens to other people without them. Definitely. noticing, And that just like, oh, no, now they got to somebody I like, so fuck them.
1: (laughs) Everything's bullshit.
0: They're just lying. But I've also noticed, yeah, you guys do a ton of research. And yeah, I'm like, I get down here and I just like, let me start talking. And I can't imagine the amount of time it takes you guys to do those episodes and with all the research you do.
1: It's a lot. (laughs) It's a good amount.
0: You guys, one more brief interruption. If you haven't looked at it yet, if you haven't heard me talk about it yet, please go check out the link in my show notes for the infrared sauna blanket that I love. You can also type in bit, B-I-T, l y backslash joy sauna, or like I said, link is in the show notes. It's the infrared sauna blanket that I use weekly. Sometimes five times a week. Sometimes one time a week. Sometimes I use it in the morning, the afternoon, end of day. No matter when I use it, I feel freaking amazing afterwards. It lets me melt away stress, pain, aches. It resets my nervous system. You really sweat so much. So it's great if you're injured and you can't move your body, but you want a good sweat. It's great if you have chronic pain, like me. It's great if you have aches and pains from driving, standing. It's just great for your body and your mind. I put mine on, wear long pants, long sleeve shirt, socks, keep a lot of water nearby. I turn mine to a number seven on the dial because there's temperature control also, and watch a good show while I'm sweating it out. 45 minutes to an hour is what I like to do, And like I said, I feel freaking amazing afterwards. So feel free to DM me, ask me any questions. Oh, I forgot. I also have a code. You can save $75 with code JOY75. They also have an interest-free payment plan. And they also have just released a new infrared sauna mat, which is something you don't lay inside but on. So it gives you all these added benefits without the sweaty, sweaty cleanup. The code works on that as well. Joy 75. Go check it out. Bit.ly backslash Joy Use code Joy 75. OK, so, yeah, you mentioned that like the, in the United States, it's probably half. I don't know if that's an actual fact. Half the general public that feels like when a covid vaccine is made available, that half the population feels like they wouldn't get it. Is that what you said?
1: Uh, Well, so far, the polls have shown 25% of Americans adults say no. And then another 27%, I believe, say that they're hesitant. So that's why the 50, it's just over 50% are either a hard no or hesitant, whereas the rest of the people say that they will take it.
0: Got it. Yeah. And I'm one of those people. I am vaccine hesitant in general, and I have two young kids. I have a three year old and five year old, and we live in California where it's uh mandated. And yeah, I'm not against them because I, I do like I get vaccines. Well, some people, there's so much information out there, eliminated these things. But what I the reason I'm hesitant is one, I know a couple first, like first, I know them firsthand of kids that were affected. So I have, it's not just, oh, I'm reading stories. Like, I do, like, have these moms' personal experiences. And also, I just wish the industry was fucking cleaned up. Like, there's just the reason I think that there can be such a big turn, again, against because of social media and because of the internet and because how quick things, you know, spreads these days, that, like, because there's all this stuff of, like, oh, well, you know, they're not what's it called like held responsible and the it's not clear what's even in the vaccines and stuff like that so those are the main reasons i myself am hesitant
1: well it's and well, first of all it's very clear what's in the vaccines that you can find out all that information on the on the websites where they're produced so that's actually not true uh, all the ingredients are listed you can find that for any vaccine that you want to but
0: that's and but uh and so but i don't know i've had anti-vaxxers send me all these links of information and some, I, I get overwhelmed, to be honest, with all of the stuff. So I do kind mm-hmm. of like check out. But yeah, I know that they have some some questioning of the vaccines or something like that. I think I more take uh, the, the like part of the responsibility, but also the fact I see why these people get so riled up and also why now many of them are falling victim to conspiracies is because I also like another thing with me is, I have mistrust with the medical industry due to like my personal experience. You know, like I was always struggled with things, went to specialists and doctors my entire high school years. I finally got the diagnosis of fibromyalgia when I was 18, got pills. They made everything worse. So I've mostly taken care of myself through taking care of myself, what I eat, you know, doing yoga, taking So I've also like been that way where I just... Realized, hey, you know what? But now I have a different respect for it. Now it's just sort of the same thing as like, oh, you get older and you realize adults don't know anything. You realize that your yoga teacher, who you're so inspired by and seems so wise, is also a human with shit. Like you know, like so it's also the fact of now I see it differently. Like I don't blame those doctors. Like there's a lot of things wrong with the human body, and they study for all this time, but whatever. Like so I don't have the like blame I used to, but I think I did carry a lot of resentment, and so again that turns into the hesitation and the mistrust of the medical industry. Of I had such things wrong with me and doctors and people didn't understand it of living with invisible illness, like that sort of stuff. So again, I guess I have this built in mistrust. And I think there's a lot of people out there that have the same thing of like having these ailments and then not feeling seen. But so these people that have kids affected in the experience, this is I personally know of, like get a shot Kid goes in seizures. Things happen. Go to the emergency room. Like things you can 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 be clearly tracked to that, but nobody taking responsibility. Like nobody saying it must have been the vaccine or something. And so then the mom, like I get it. Like they must feel like they're going crazy and like everyone's lying to them. So that it's even the responsibility of the fact. Like can there be admission that people might not react positively to these vaccines? It could create things.
1: Well, there there is admission. I mean, there's a vaccine court, and you can. Look online and find the 8,000 cases or so in the last decade that have been discussed in that court. This is again, it's all available on the CDC website. And what you I'll talk, I'll say a few things. First off, the mistrust is understandable. I, I kind of get it from both ends on all of these issues, because on one hand, We have done a few episodes now talking about vaccinations on conspirituality where we lay things out. And so therefore, we've been criticized. And this is sort of, I lead in this one because it's something important to me. um, Criticized for being pro-pharma, which is the furthest thing from the truth because in my psychedelic book, half of the book is talking about the problems with the pharmaceutical industry. So then on that side, when I've interacted with psychiatrists and mental health professionals who 've read my articles on big think they 've criticized me for being completely uh, anti um, anti pharma in every capacity, uh, and that i don 't know anything about mental health, whereas I suffered from anxiety disorder for twenty five years and i 'm more in your camp where I was diagnosed in a certain way and then put on xanax without psychotherapy and then had to deal with navigate that myself so It's that what you say is, you say there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And I like to point out just a couple of things first off. And then again, this is prefaced by saying that our biology interacts potentially negatively with everything. You can die from (laughs) drinking too much water. So there's no chemical is benign, none. It's always dosage. I mean, this is going back to Paracelsus. Like he understood that dosage matter, what heals in a small amount- can be toxic in a large amount so that is very clear and I think any credible researcher in vaccines or otherwise understand that uh, unfortunately you have certain characters who are trying to profit off of the misinformation and the mistrust that you bring up and I'll get to that in a moment vaccines are one of the most uh, important interventions in the history of medicine, along with antibiotics. Uh, if you, and it's just very easy to track. You just look at population charts. So you look at pop. It took us um, 350,000 years as a species for the conditions to be right for there to be 1 billion animals, humans on this planet, right? So that happened in the 19th century when we passed 1 billion for the first time, that was the century where vaccinations and germ theory were introduced shortly thereafter in the early 20th century of antibiotics. And then you have hygiene practices like understanding that water carries disease and viruses. So those, th- that understanding of medicine then brought us to 350,000 years to get to 1 billion. In under 200 years, we are approaching 8 billion. So if you want to look at, and specific to vaccines, look at the childhood death rate before the 20th century, and then after vaccines were introduced. It just skyrockets, what the, the, or actually, what goes the other way? There, it, there was a one in five chance before the 20th century that your baby would die before age five. And now it 's moving in the wrong direction in America, unfortunately, but the chances are still minuscule comparatively relatively, and that directly is linked to vaccinations and to antibiotics and If you want to just find your grandparents and talk to them about polio and what was happening then or or go to African nations where they, they don 't have access to vaccines, and their death rates are still extremely high for viruses or i 'm sorry not viruses because there 's very few. Um, vaccines for viruses, where diseases are ravaging still areas what we have completely got, uh, gotten under control and practically eradicated. Um, the fact that measles has made a comeback in this world is only indicative of the fact of the lack of scientific literacy that we have. So from a historical, uh, from a historical perspective, vaccines are important. And I also want to point out, and this gets to the the misinformation that you bring up, vaccines have been around for almost 2000 years they they are rooted in traditional chinese medicine they were discussed then They were also, I once got into an argument with a homeopathic doctor because he said all vaccines are, you can't trust any of them. And I asked him, you know that Samuel Hahnemann, the founder of homeopathy, was ecstatic when vaccines were introduced and actually proven uh, to work because the same underlying premise of homeopathy is vaccination, which is that a little bit cures the larger load, the viral right. load. So Hanuman, who, as much as I don't like homeopathy in certain regards now, Hanuman was railing against the system at the time that he was in because he saw bloodletting, for example, was a common therapy. The idea that draining you of a pint of blood would heal your sickness. And he thought that was barbaric. And so he actually came up with homeopathy because he was fighting this, the medical system he was in. And I pointed out that, and I showed him the text of Hanuman when he wrote pro-vaccination literature, and then he stopped conversing with me because, he, because a lot of homeopathic fans don't even know Samuel Hanuman is. I've read his book. I've researched him for a book chapter I worked on. So it's so easy yeah. to spread misinformation now. Now, I've given a historical perspective, but I want to point out something, and this relates to what you said about your friends, and I'm not denying the fact that it is possible. But here's the thing. The study that set off this current craze, which is Andrew Wakefield's disproven study, there were a dozen children in that study that were hand-selected because they had specific problems, which is, first of all, goes against credible science because it should be random. But Those children, when when Brian Deere did the research, and his book just came out on this, which I read last month, and he's been covering this for 20 years in in the UK, the, the timelines of the effects of what the parents, some of the parents of those children claimed were the problems either predate the vaccination or come six to eight months after the vaccination. But the data was changed in Wakefield's study to say that it happened within hours or days after the vaccination. There is a paper trail showing that the children, the effects that the children were having had nothing to do with the vaccination. Interestingly, while Wakefield was publishing this data that became the report in the Lancet that ended up getting discredited and removed from the Lancet, he filed for his own measles vaccination. He was trying to say that the current vaccinations on the market, the MMR specifically, was not effective and it was harming people at the same time that he was trying to file a pay- patent for his own measles vaccine in the hope that he would get people to be scared of this one so that oh. they would take his. And all, all of this is public knowledge. You can find all of this on record. And that's what's so frustrating about all of this to me we've gone through all of the adjuvants that um, people are worried about. Take squalene, for example. That is a common cosmetic that women use, and my, my wife has a bottle of it, that use on their faces and for skincare all the time. But that's one of the most debated for people with vaccines. And I, I don't understand. If you think the minute quality of that is going to bother you, but then you put it on your skin on a daily basis, there's something wrong with that mindset. And I, I find this constantly with the anti-vaccination crowd. And again, this does not to say that vaccinations don't have problems. It is well known that it is. And I, I'll agree, I'm skeptical of anything the Trump administration's put forward right now. They've just been lying about this the entire time. So specific to a COVID vaccine, I would not take something by this administration unless I saw enough credible researchers and the actual phase three trials that show efficacy. But so there is reason to be skeptical on that level. But when it comes to the efficacy of vaccines, it's just, it's just, it's a non starter of a conversation that unfortunately has created a real paranoia for a number of reasons that usually have nothing to do with vaccinations themselves.
0: Yeah. Like last time I had to take my daughter for like a checkup and she was due for vaccines, like I'm a mess. Like I am an emotional f- fear mess about it. And it also doesn't help that the nurses in my doctor's office, when I ask them, they're like, oh, what about this one? And do you have whatever? Does she have this? They ask questions Give, okay, this is a live virus. So has this happened today? Or is she gonna be any around anybody with these things? You know? And I'm like, well, why? What does that mean? Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And I'll try to ask them questions about that. And they don't know the answers. They go, Oh, well, I well, do you want to talk to the doctor? And then the doctor will just come in and say it's fine. I've done vaccines for years, like blah blah blah. Everything's fine. Do you think I would be giving vaccines if they weren't? So it also like that doesn't make me feel good that they're not even able to be like a lot. Like the reason we like they get nervous, <laughs> and then so then I'm like, what is this? This is all a sham. Like. <laughs>
1: continual education for doctors the lack of continuing it is a a serious problem
0: when the nurses are the ones that give the vaccines and they're just like i don't i have this questionnaire to ask you and i have this and you start to ask me questions
1: (laughs) i ran into this with my primary care doctor a couple years ago when i went from being a vegetarian to eating meat again my cholesterol levels went up but i also have genetic high cholesterol my father suffers my whole family has suffered from that and she immediately, when it went up to a, a concerning range, but nothing out of the, you know, not too concerning, uh, she immediately wanted to put on a statin. And then I said to her, "Well, just this year, the American Heart Association came out and said that actually this link between cholesterol and heart disease isn't nearly as solid as they thought, and they're actually pulling back the guidelines." And and she said, "I haven't seen that." And I and again, I'm not just pulling this off the web off the web randomly. This is from the American Heart Association website because as a science journalist i covered that when it came out and if it turns out that i should be on a statin because my levels go up they continue to go up i will go on one but the following year i went and my my levels dropped 40 points and they were still slightly high but not nearly as bad and i was like i'm not i'm i'm in my mid 40s i'm not going on something for the rest of my life when the evidence isn't there so what you point up is a problem when you yeah, when you go to a medical professional and they say, I don't know, that doesn't help.
0: And they get nervous when I'm like, what? I'm supposed to be but um yeah. And also like again, I really I did, I read your uh I read an article that you wrote on was it Big Think? And where you did you mentioned earlier like have a conversation with your parents where you where you uh basically no one has brought this idea really to me, or if I they did, I wasn't listening at the point, but that the reality that like, well, what is worse? You'd of course don't want your kid to have an adva- adverse reaction to a vaccine. You don't want them to get autism, not saying there's anything wrong with autism, but of course you want, you know, whatever. You don't want that to happen, but what would be the worst thing like that they get, this or that? Was that where you're basically trying to portray in that article? That's what I was getting to like, to the think of myself, like, I'm afraid that my kid could be injured by a vaccine. So I don't want to get it. But what would be worse that they get that? Is that what you're trying to put in that article?
1: I'm sorry, I don't completely understand what what you're (laughs) the the way
0: I I was reading the article about like, how uh, talking to like relatives that have been through like polio and stuff like that too oh was
1: so you're saying would it be worse to get the disease the the virus so like
0: that that way of like help you know because like what i'm saying nobody wants to like i'm afraid that my kid might be one of the ones that are affected and i don't want that but what would be harder to deal with if they had gotten the disease or if they got or if autism was developed
1: Well, considering that measles was a huge killer for a long time, I think that's pretty obvious. And the fact that we've just, again, gone in the wrong direction and the fact that kids are suffering something that we've gotten under control and were almost eradicated about 20 years ago. Uh, That's, that's the answer. I mean, it's even, I mean, you know, you can take that argument to anything with COVID right now. I mean, a lot of people will not be negatively impacted long term, but we still don't know the long-term effects. And there are the long-haul carriers that they're calling them that six, eight months later still have neurological problems, still potentially have heart problems, and they don't know what that's going to look like in a few years. And I know I'm I'm not a parent, uh, but in our episode that we covered vaccinations, Matthew and Julian are, and they, I thought that they tackled, especially Julian's segment, he tackled the topic saying that I have a daughter who, who actually they didn't know the first two weeks of her life if she was going to make it. She had some serious health problems. And so we talked about what it's like as a parent worrying about your child and that none of this is taken lightly. Like we're not, you know, one thing we don't try to do is just go out and say, no, you're wrong. We we're trying to present all of the evidence. But when you look at, for example, The fact that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. continues to confuse methylmercury and ethylmercury, one which has profoundly worse effects on the body and is not the form of mercury in vaccinations, and the fact that uh, mercury via thimerosal was predominantly taken out of almost all vaccinations in 1999 But autism rates have gone up since that time. When you look at the data and you see that that's there, you have to be honest with that evidence. And the fact that people are still talking about mercury when they're almost in no vaccines, usually you have the option if you don't want it in there. And the fact that autism rates continue to go up, even though it is not in vaccinations, you have to question the narrative.
0: Yeah. And just another thing, like, again, that makes me just not liking the industry. It's like, we well, even stuff like there's a vaccine right now that like the list you get and it changed. My kids are two less than two years apart and the vaccines added to their yellow sheet changed within those two years, added more. So it's also like, why is there so much more? And like, why at birth are they supposed to get like hepatitis A? Like, and okay, chicken pox sucks, but like, we all got chicken pucks, whatever. It was a shitty week. Like, so it's more like, again, like knowing the industry and like, wait, is this real? Is it just ways to like make money or and stuff like, yeah, like why does my baby need hepatitis A at birth? Like that's when they try to give at birth I th- or not at birth, but right away. Yeah,
1: I, I will say shitty week. I mean, my sister had chickenpox twice, bad, badly twice, and I also, you know, suffered that. And I remember. But you also have to think long term. Do you really want to set yourself up for shingles, which my grandmother suffered from terribly? And so that vaccination potentially could also limit the the risk of getting shingles. And now they have a shingles vaccine. You can get it once you're over fifty. Uh, but but you have to also. And let me just say, I again, not as a parent, I've heard the scheduling. Argument And I don't personally touch that because it's I have not intense. experienced that, but Julian has, and both Matthew and Julian talk about it and they are, they're comfortable with, with the scheduling. But, you know, but again, I think that's a different conversation than, than the broader one, because I, I, again, I don't the the idea that the pharmaceutical industry is looking out for us and they're not trying to maximize profit of course that's something that's absurd like there, yeah. there's serious problems with that industry and that is that it, it is unfortunate because that ma- that profit maximization does confuse us on a public health level and so they're really shooting themselves in the foot you have a very small amount of people making a lot of money from it whereas you're, you you could actually be a little bit more understanding of those fears and and be honest with the evidence and they're not. So I, I do understand the concerns about that. It's absolutely valid.
0: Yeah. So that's why I was saying. I was just putting all the elements that come up into my mind of like then make me be like again with my personal history that make me be questionable it. So yeah, I had never intended on getting into a vaccination conversation on my podcast, but I think that it will help. And honestly the things that you've said and the way you say them and that article, which I will link to, which I didn't reference very well because you didn't even know what I was talking about in your own article. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've written many. That's why right. I've written a number. I just happened so upon that
0: one today. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, I, you honestly have spoken more intelligently and have created more you know, thought in my mind than anything that I've seen. And what I, I last year was trying to get Ronan Farrow on this case. Like I feel like, cause again, I'm just hesitant. Like I just want it cleaned up. Like there's so much like this, you know, it's like this and this and there's misinformation and yeah, people are sharing information. Like you said, that's outdated as if it's the truth and don't trust them that it's not the truth. So I was like, all right. So he exposed Harvey <laughs> Weinstein. Like, can this be your next project? Like, let's get the real details on vaccines. Ronan, can you- well, well- (laughs)
1: Well, no. I want to say two things. First of all, uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee is my favorite science writer, one of my favorites. He's written The Emperor of All Maladies, which is a phenomenal book on the history of cancer, which I happened to read before I went through cancer. So it really grounded me and helped me. Mm. Um, And then The Gene, which was about epigenetics. And then I just... Happened to get into a conversation with him one day on Twitter, and and he said, "I look at it as a trilogy," and he's like, "My third book is going to be on vaccinations," and I was like, "So someone is on that, which I'm very happy about." He's yeah. an elegant writer and thinker, uh, but I do want to recommend to your listeners two things that I think would could actually help kind of frame this, and they, none of them, neither of them, do are do are dealing with vaccinations, but they kind of speak to the broader points, and one is called. Uh, What Patients Say What Doctors Hear, which is a short book by Daniel Offrey, And she does an amazing job at talking about the miscommunication between doctors and patients and what happens in the capitalist for-profit healthcare system where doctors are incentivized to see as many patients as possible in an hour rather than spending time with one and how uh, that, that lack of communication really impacts healthcare. And it's just such a wonderful book and something I hadn't really thought about until she wrote and I've reviewed that book on Big Think. And the other one is called uh, Chemically Imbalanced by Joseph Davis. And that's a book about psychiatry and the overprescription of benzodiazepines and SSRIs. But what I found interesting specific to our conversation is that he did, uh, it was something I think 88 patients he, he had detailed conversations with. And what he found out was that Almost in every situation, when someone went to their psychiatrist or general health practitioner for a psychiatric problem like anxiety or depression, they had decided what they had before they got there. And when they told the doctor what they thought they should be on, the doctor most always just complied with their assessment. They said, that sounds right. Here's the prescription. And that is also problematic. And that, again, points to the problem of the lack of psychotherapy and the willingness to just put people on medication. But I bring that up specific to this conversation again, to point out with, and I don't know your friends and I don't know their children. So if they are listening, I don't want them to be like, get, take this personally, but from a broader perspective, if, if, your child suffers from something around the time of the vaccination, it's very easy to think, oh, it must be that without actually having any data or proof about that. And with the Wakefield study as precedent of that, that is something that does happen. We always want an explanation. and Or something have- to blame. Exactly. Something to blame. So that has been problematic in this whole autism connection because when the signs start to appear, ranges from child to child and illnesses happen. We know that infants are germ machines, right? They pick up everything and you don't know what's going to impact them. So it's very easy to let your mind wander and speculate when it could not be the case. Maybe it is but we have to recognize that because of all of these factors we've been discussing here it's it's we want the easiest possible answer right occam's razor we always want that right away and healthcare has never been and probably will never be that clear cut
0: yeah and i mean i think that myself even i realized i hadn't really seen a medical doctor in like 20 years like chiropractor you know wellness whatever this person whatever and i recently like Started having issues again and wanted to go to a chiropractor and acupuncture, but I wanted insurance to cover it, so I needed to go to a primary care doctor. So I like got a physical, which then they were like, "Oh, your blood work." They sent me to get eight million other tests, and then and then that then came back to, "Well, I guess you just have fibromyalgia." Like I had to get like twenty blood tests and X ray of every bone in my body, <laughs> and then they still were like to the rheumatologist. Well, yeah, but still don't – I guess, yeah, maybe I guess it's just the fibromyalgia you said that you got diagnosed with at 18. <laughs> like, But anyway, but I realize when I go to these appointments even in acupuncture and they're like, how have you feeling since then? That like, I – when they want me to describe how I feel, it's hard, it's fucking hard. So also the information we are coming to doctors to like describe what we're going through, like it's really hard for a doctor even to have all the information, right? Of all your symptoms. Like, you know, yeah. like I'm and like, oh, I have this and that, but most of the things I forget, like I'm just used to living with them also.
1: <laughs> we're also very accustomed to the idea of having a problem and taking a pill for it. And that that itself is a is a serious problem. Uh, medicine and one entire chapter of my book goes through basically since Hippocrates to now in a very brief manner, but just showing that we have very weird theories about healthcare and we always have. And the ideas we just don't know everything. And I think that that affording that level of understanding to your doctor is important and I think good doctors will own up to that but not every doctor is a good doctor so it's tough I had a real I, I in one year's time you know at UCLA I had the best possible cancer experience with the team and then the worst possible experience getting knee surgery whereas they were almost Like like when I said I was a yoga instructor, they said we we're not even gonna write that down as a career. They actually said that to me. And 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 then and then once they got the scans and they they actually put four holes instead of three in my knee. So when I took the bandaging off, I was like, What happened? They said it was gonna be three. A week later I go back and I'm like, Why is there an extra hole? And they said, Oh, the meniscus was torn so badly that we can't even believe you were walking and i had had it torn for almost 10 years and i looked at them and i said yeah that yoga does something maybe perhaps huh and, and so so i i get that like you know it's it's hard doctors are humans too and they're infallible and we need to you know hopefully get good ones but also have some remember it's a dialogue it's not one way in either direction
0: right that's what i've been more aware of, is what i'm saying is like they're going with, yeah, they have short time with you. They have this, but also like, how can I be relating the information as clearly as possible and seeing that like, yeah, they're like, it can be so much better, but how can I like also give the benefit of doubt and like show up? But I was pleased. She was, she was like, I went to get a recommendation for chiropractic and she was like, oh, well, would we can also recommend acupuncture for you. And I was like, oh yes, I'll take acupuncture. And she was like, do you want, pills. Like there's a lot of prescriptions, you know, I was like, yeah, I know the prescriptions have changed since I got diagnosed with this 18 years ago, but I was like, I still would rather not have any. And she was like, that's great. That's great. Like she was like, not trying to push me on them. She was like, we do have prescriptions if you want them. And she was like, or like go to, or go to acupuncture. And it sounds like you're doing a great job of taking care of it with this, whatever. But I was like, thank you for not pushing them on me. The last thing I want to say is yeah. I mean, I, you know, with those people that had those experiences, I don't know. They are very, they've gone very off the wall, whereas one had her second child, even like in a cabin alone. I don't know if the child has ever even been registered with the government. And she's five, she's, she's old. No one have never entered school districts of any kind or anything like, that. Like, so like, so it really deeply afflicted <laughs> her. Um, but also because of that, she heals people like she has created these formulas and written things and so she does a lot of work now so she even like has given me information on when i am like okay i think i have to actually get this vaccine cuz my kid is going into elementary school of like all of these things to take to help the toxins go through and stuff like that so in one way like that happened to her but she does so any also anyone out there DM me or send me a message if you have someone or if you're afraid and i can you know, send information this way from my friend who, while this happened to her and she's very upset, she also is doing the work to try to help people that want, need, still choose to get them and how to best protect the children's like immune system and stuff and then healing their gut. Like, cause a lot of them have healed their children a lot, not completely, but with, yeah, like totally regenerating the gut and like, you know, all that. So they go way into like natural, like basically, I understand, I understand them going bananas in some ways.
1: <laughs> I'll just, I'll say though, I conclude my book on psychedelic therapy uh, with a discussion of placebo. And I wish the placebo method was discussed more often because the studies are fascinating. And I, I, I while people get very uh, reactive about that, I actually think it's one of the most fascinating aspects. The idea that how you think of something changes the chemistry in your body to either help or hurt you. It's crazy. Because that's what the placebo is actually doing. And I wish that. And there has been study, there was one study on knee pain where, uh, or this one might have been back pain, this particular study, where uh, um, patients or volunteers were given pill bottles that said placebo and they were told it's sugar and that was it. And they still had as good of a result in pain reduction as people who were put on opioids.
0: Bananas. Knowing
1: that. But it was the ritual of taking a pill in their mind. Because they're that like, they I'm link. doing
0: something that's going to make me feel better. I get and that. So, Even like I'll hold a crystal in my hand and be like, look, it's supposed to do something. So I'm just.
1: <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, if you think about all of, all of those things, crystals. I, I've written about the crystal industry before, which is an extremely exploitative industry where the workers who mine them are die and get almost no money and then they're sold for thousands of dollars. Uh, so when you look at it from a social level, there's a serious problem with it. And whether or not they do anything, it's probably placebo. Does that make it bad? No. If it's, if it's a tool that helps you for meditation or something, awesome. Use whatever tool. But I, my thing about all of this, whether you're talking – Uh, natural healing or vaccinations or whatever, is just be honest with the evidence. And if the thing works for you, know where it comes from and know what it does. But if it works, then use it. Somebody recently, an old friend of mine uh, emailed me. She's like, I found this meditation app that's really working for me, but I wonder what your feeling is about using tech for meditation. And I was like, you answered it already. It's working for you. Wonderful. (laughs) Like if it's helping you in your life, go with it. Uh, and I think it's hard for people. We live in such a binary world and culture as it is. And then add to that healthcare is so you either have to be vegan or not. You have to do this. Or, and humans just aren't that. We're not that animal. We're much more diverse. And the microbiome, we have different, different needs for, from person to person. And until we recognize that, we're, we're going to stay in this holding pattern where people are just yelling at each other instead of openly discussing the evidence.
0: Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I'm yeah, I get I think when I'm um, yeah, I've again, and that's why I've never been like, totally one way or totally one when it's like, I try to like, open up to information. But yeah, the vaccine information is intense and overwhelming. <laughs> like, it's hard, you know, it's like, can be like, this is information, but these people can say it so loudly. No, they're lying to you. No, they're lying to you. And then I'm just like, <laughs> checking out.
1: There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of noise, <laughs> but I, I always I always point this out too. There is not some secret cabal of healthcare professionals that are trying to hurt us or, uh, the, or maximize. there are pharmaceutical. The Sackler family is a great example of that with the with OxyContin. But so there are companies maximizing profit, sure, but. I've interfaced with so many researchers and doctors in my career, and they're just trying to do good work. They're trying to alleviate suffering. So when they're putting out studies and they're, they're funded by the universities and not by pharmaceutical companies, they're doing credible work. And to lump them in with everyone else and say that their evidence is faulty just because they work in that industry is really unfortunate, especially when you end up in the hospital and you need their help. Uh, so I, I ask people to to remember that that the bulk of people in these industries are just trying to do their job and trying to be honest with things.
0: Yeah, and again, I, you know, it is hard with taking the power of choice way, which is like I get vaccines needing to be manda- mandated because so many people have turned against them, and so then it could you know be a resurgence. But it also I think that that's where people can get super activated. Like now you're forcing me to do this, like, it's another thing that adds on. Whereas like, I, again, I get it, but I also get that, you know? So it's, yeah, it's all a big load of. I
1: don't, I don't get it from the perspective of people don't understand what public health actually means, which is for the community and the lack of relationship among people to understand both their interactions with the environment and with other people. It fails me at that point. And again, this isn't to say that there aren't problems with the industry, but being in an individualist culture, we have a real lack of understanding. We're so about sovereignty and liberty that we forget that we're only as strong as our weakest link, truly. And we're watching that hot play out yeah. in our culture this week.
0: Well, and it's interesting because I made that to my friend and you're just making me see it differently right now is that I had said I said to a friend, like, even if, you know, anti-vaxxers believe that somehow Trump is a light person or something, but even if Trump was like, I'm reversing all claims, you know, nobody is going to have to have vaccines. Like, even if that was something he was doing and I'm someone who is, hesitant or anxious and has people, I still would not be able to vote for him because the rights he's taking away from other people. And I am a white privileged person who right now, like, yeah, what he's doing would affect my friends and this and maybe my kids when they grow up and stuff. But in this moment, I could selfishly say, well, fuck, you know, whatever. But I really want this. I don't want to be forced to have vaccines. So I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have done that because I care about the people whose rights, like, the, uh, you know, like and the earth. And so like now you're, me now seeing this in this conversation is also like, well, if I'm saying I care about the people, then if I'm saying I'm not going to get my kids vaccinated and but then that could end up creating uh, not just my kids getting sick with these things, but the spread and that. So like I'm seeing it as like, you know, so like that right now just made me see it again that I was coming from a very in no me, me, me place and not yeah, thinking and- about everyone else's kids.
1: And that's the the paradox of living in Los Angeles. This city is known for the wellness kickstarting the wellness industry and holistic lifestyles. And that the conspiratorial and paranoid thinking that has kind of come along with that is baffling to me, to be completely honest. I mean, understandable in some ways because of the levels of privilege that part of the population does have here. But it's also just just again, I just I, I fall back on this term, but scientific literacy is a serious problem.
0: Yes. Okay. Wow. Obviously we could talk for hours and hours. Thank you for all of your intellect research information. Let's now finally get to the questions that I ask everyone. What is a go-to to raise your joy levels?
1: Uh exercise, movement, movement. I mean every day, like I said. Uh, days that I don't work out, my wife will comment. She's like, Oh, you didn't work out today. <laughs> but, uh, I, I split my time between uh weightlifting cardiovascular, which is mostly on my bike and then, uh, mobility exercises. I mean, I S I don't even do much yoga anymore, to be honest. Like I do yoga movements, but it's, it's all just movement to me. So mobility drills, gymnastic warm ups, yoga. Um, but the the thing that gets me going on a daily basis is just moving my body, especially because my, the 10, 12 hours a day I'm on my computer working, which is tough. Um, so, and since I no longer teach group classes, I at least used to have Equinox go to, to get out for a few hours, but no longer having that movement has become even more important during this time.
0: Yeah, I get that. And that's why I was like, hi, I'm popping on right after sweating (laughs) today. (laughs) All right. So the next question is I ask, what is, I ask people to apply this phrase to their own life. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. So it could be a way of being a habit or something. And so I ask people to apply it. So what is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me is blank.
1: I wake up at, 5, 5.30 every morning predominantly because that's when my cats make sure I'm up to feed them. And what is easiest when I get on my computer is to start replying to people. But what is best is to wait until the coffee kicks in and I have a clearer <laughs> head to reply because I've made that mistake. I've sent things before and then once the coffee kicks in, I realize what I had done. So I, do no, I no longer reply to things until I've had at least a half an hour of wakefulness.
0: Uh, that's a smart one too. I can do that too. I'll just like <laughs> see an email and start like a prying on my phone and then I'll stop myself midway. Like, why mm-hmm. am I even yep. like <laughs> it's yet yeah, it's 730 in the morning <laughs> or whatever. I'm like replying on my phone. Is this the best way? <laughs> okay. So I ask everybody to not necessarily pick which phrase they like the most, but which one they feel they want or as a reminder in their life right now. And why I am enough. I am magic. I am a badass. So fucking grateful. I am here now. Own your awesome. See the good. Fuck your fears. Let that shit go. Everything is going my way. Fuck the shoulds. Do the once. The only judge of me is me. I trust the timing of my life. And I choose joy. Is the last one. I choose joy.
1: There was an episode last year, I think, about uh, on Bill Maher, where he talked about how everyone thinks that the best, the best relationship phrase is, I love you or I'm sorry. And he was like, no, it's let that go. <laughs> and that is something that I have never forgotten on uh, so many levels, my relationship, but otherwise. So I think that let that shit go would be the, the most important one. <laughs>
0: All right. I love that. The last question is, is the name of the podcast is Claim It? Because I feel so often we are putting our self-worth, fulfillment, enoughness, success out there somewhere. Once I have this, once I have the surgery, unfortunately to whatever, take the perfect Instagram picture, then I'll feel enough, worthy, whatever, whatever it is. So we're constantly putting these feelings outside of us and I feel we can claim them at any time. Sometimes we need to do it every moment of the day, definitely every day. So what are you claiming for yourself right now?
1: I'm claiming to be a student until the day that I die. That's it.
0: Love that. And yeah, aren't we freaking all? <laughs> you doing it right, it yeah. yeah. <laughs> thinking about it, yeah. And just thinking about it that way I think can save us so much pain. <laughs>
1: That's, that's, yeah, exactly. I, I want to learn till the day that I die and I want to work on my, on myself and and my craft as a writer, as a movement practitioner, everything until, until I can't.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Derek. And I will send links to all your stuff. Yeah, please.
1: That was awesome. It was great uh, meeting you and talking to you. Thank you so much for asking me to be on. This was really enjoyable.
0: Woo. If you're listening to this part, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening and uh, following us through the whole way. I definitely didn't plan to get into a conversation about vaccines. Uh, I wasn't really prepared also with like the things I've seen over the years. And yeah, as I said, I get overwhelmed with a lot of it. And even after talking to Derek, I felt so much like, oh, OK, I now see this perspective differently or, OK, these are the facts. I didn't know this and this. But then that's, you know, then all of a sudden I see other information about, no, that's a lie. And they changed the name to this name, but it's still in the vaccine. And there's just so much information out there. It's overwhelming. I don't have the answers for you. Um or me, but I am making sure to look at the real facts and to think beyond myself. Ooh. Anyway, for full show notes, including links to the books that Derek shouted out, go to yourdiorologist slash podcast, and you will find links to all the things we mention and uh, show notes for every episode. For all things Derek. Go to DerekBarras.com, and he's at DerekBarras on Instagram. There's also the Conspirituality podcast. I mean, same thing. Like, they are covering things with a lot of facts and research. Maybe they don't get everybody's opinions, but they are going into details and exposing some things that I think are good. And also just the fact of, like... (sighs) who are we getting our information from? And there is a lot of super toxic positivity out there. And it took me a couple of years to realize that I was even, you know, a part of that. Um, and and, and it, I don't have to like, I do feel bad about it, but also it's like, I didn't know until I knew. And I was myself trying to use these practices to positive myself out of, you know, out of feeling pain, hurt, whatever. So now, you know, if you've been following me, you tell the opposite. I'm all about like feeling the things, seeing all the reality. And then you can still choose to see the good, but not just wiping that away. Anyway, thanks again for listening. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, leave a review. If you do leave a review, screenshot it and send it to me at podcast at your and I'll send you a gift from my product line. Speaking of the product line, holiday shopping, please remind, remember to shop small. I'd love for you to shop my products, shop.yourdryologist.com. And you know, it's easy to go Amazon target who are the big guys that are having sales. But us little companies really do need you. And we put a lot of love into our products. I know I do. So think about shopping with me for your loved ones. Happy to include gift messages for you. Just put it in the shop notes at checkout. And also, if you ever order something to someone else, when we see that the uh, billing and shipping address is different, I never put an invoice in. So I see you giving gifts and I love it. And of course, don't forget about my daily inspiration app called Own Your Awesome. You can also gift that, and it's only 3 dollars in the Apple App Store. Hundreds of powerful thoughts and affirmations. And yeah, check out that sauna too. A link in the show notes or bit.ly backslash joy sauna. Feel free to DM me, ask me any questions. Tell me why you're listening. I love seeing you share the episode. I'm here for you. And for the final thought of the day, whoo, what are you claiming for yourself right in this moment? You might just be like, I'm claiming me (laughs) because right now there's a lot going on in the world. I can feel overwhelmed by a lot. So I just keep coming back to me. So that's my answer in this moment. I am claiming me. (laughs) All right. Own your awesome and claim your joy.